What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition. This is Chris, your host. Uh, this week's guest is Thaddeus Russell, truth teller extraordinaire of the highest order. He's a, a you know, torpedoes be damned, full speed ahead conversationalist, which I really appreciate. I especially appreciate it given the fact that Thad is an untenured professor at Occidental College which, like virtually all um, academic settings in the United States, is a shark pool full of the easily offended and the ideologically pure. And uh, given that, you've got to give Thad a lot of credit for being the, you know, balls-to-the-wall, tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy that he is and and, uh, that we all we all love him for that. So make sure if you haven't read his book, A Renegade History of the United States, get that thing. It's full of amazing uh, information that you would not learn otherwise. Like that that for example, I, I it's been years since I read it, but I still remember being amazed at the 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 picture of colonial America that he paints, which is so different from the conventional view you know, of the sort of, you know, hardworking Ben Franklin kind of scene, you know, what Thad puts together and, and demonstrates quite clearly is that it was a very bohemian scene. The the blacks and the whites mixing freely, in, especially in the northern um, colonies. Uh, lots of, I, I guess the thesis of the book really is that almost everything we appreciate most about contemporary American culture uh, came to us thanks to people who were at the time vilified, the prostitutes, the blacks, the Indians, the, the poor Irish. They're the people who brought us the things that today we celebrate as, uh, you know, the best parts of American culture, whether it's jazz, rock and roll, you know, uh, uh, racial uh, harmony, all these different things that we consider to be uniquely and wonderfully American were actually brought to us by criminals, hookers, and, and escaped slaves. I watched uh, my buddy Joe Rogan last night. I was in a bar with a friend, and the UFC fights were on, uh, and I look up, and I, I hear a voice that I that's familiar. Like, well, whose voice is that? I look up, and uh, Joe's on TV doing commentary for the UFC fights. Um. That that's always a bizarre experience when you see a friend on TV, especially in this case because I know Joe as a friend first. I, I didn't, I'd never seen him on TV until I already uh, met him through Duncan, and we did a couple of podcasts. And you know, I I I was intellectually aware of the fact that he had TV shows and and stuff like that, but I never saw an episode of uh, news radio. I never saw a single episode of uh, Fear Factor. You know, I was living overseas when he did his whole TV thing. And so I, I don't think of him as a TV guy. I think of him as Joe. So it's funny to 
to look up and see him on TV. He's very good at it. He's he's a very interesting guy, as you know. Uh, if if you know who he is, he's a he's a, st- a very good stand-up comic. He's an amazing podcaster. He's got one of the most popular podcasts in the world. And he does uh, UFC fighting uh, or UFC uh, commentary because he's a world-class uh, jiu-jitsu black belt. I think he won, I don't know if it was a national title or a Massachusetts state title, but he's serious, a legit serious martial artist in addition to a very legit comedian, very legit podcast. I mean, he's, he's a very, he's an amazing guy. Anyway, um, so that was kind of surreal. Uh, not much else going on. Uh, we got the, the dreaded late night phone call the other night. Um, Cassie's stepfather had died. And, uh, so the last, my last 48 hours have been, uh, occupied with trying to get her from here to the other side of the world in time for the funeral, which is doable, but expensive and, and stressful. So she's, uh, somewhere in the air over Africa as I speak. And, uh, I know you join me in wishing her the best experience possible within the confines of, of what's going on. Uh, I'm not going to say much more. Uh, as usual, thank you to uh, Basin and Range for that intro groove. Thanks to Carsey Blanton for Smoke Alarm at the end of this podcast. Thanks, as always, to Shore Design T-shirts. You can get yours at chrisryanphd.com or uh, if you want to uh, check them out, shoredesigntshirts.com. They've got all sorts of stuff there. If you use Sex at Dawn at checkout, you get 10% off your order. Thanks to Donnie, sorry, Danny Osment, uh, emeraldcitypro.com. He masters these files, and he also runs Fund What You Love, which uh, is up and running for two weeks now. And uh, several of you have, have made donations to the podcast through that site. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm waiting for them to uh, generate reports so I can thank you all individually and send you whatever bonus content I've promised you and all that. Um, but it's a work in progress, so it might be a couple of weeks till I get those reports back. But in any case, if you want to support the podcast, it's much appreciated. You can do it through fundwhatyoulove.com. It's a buck, two bucks, five bucks, whatever you want to put toward it. Uh, it's a recurring monthly thing. So, uh, I sort of have an operating budget and know what I've got coming in. That's wonderful. If, uh, you want to just make a donation, you can do that through the PayPal, uh, button on chrisryanphd.com, or you can just order your Amazon stuff through my portal at, uh, chrisryanphd.com and we get a little cut of whatever you spend at Amazon. Okay. Warning. If you don't like screaming guitars and um, dense drumming and um, the 1970s, you might want to just skip the mashup. This week's mashup is dedicated to my high school years, which were 1976 to 1980. Um, The songs that I chose are not all, were not all uh, put out in those years, but they were popular in those years. So they're songs that I remember from high school. Uh, it's fun for me. I don't know if it's self-indulgent or what. I get a lot of emails from people saying, hey, I love the mashups. And every once in a while from someone saying, dude, fuck the mashups, whatever. If you don't like the mashups, just skip right through it. Okay. Skip over it. You don't need to listen to it. 
But I like it. I like listening to you know, a few bars of a song and trying to put it all together and remember what was that song. So some of these are really obvious. You'll know immediately what song it is. Some of them, I, I chose a snippet where the singer's not singing, so you don't have that uh, that clue. And uh, so anyway, I'll, I'll just run through what the songs are quickly and uh, and you can enjoy it or not. It's your call. Uh, Kodachrome, Paul Simon, Long Time, Boston, Come Together, The Beatles, Logical Song, Super Tramp, Fame, David Bowie, Against the Wind, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, Life's Been Good, Joe Walsh, Tom Sawyer, Rush. Oh, Tom Sawyer, that, the, the, the section I picked from, from Tom Sawyer, I don't think they're singing at all, so you won't hear Geddy Lee's crazy high voice, but you'll hear him just fucking shredding the bass. And um, he's just an amazing bass player. And then Neil Parrott going nuts on the drums, as he tends to do. Locobonive Breath by Jethro Tull. Now, for those of you too young to know this, Jethro Tull was this band in the 70s. I don't know if they made it into the 80s. Uh, but the main guy, Ian Anderson, I think his name was, is probably the only rock and roll flautist in history. If there's another, I, I don't know who it is. Um, and it always makes me think like, you know, when he was taking flute lessons in high school, <laughs> like what do his parents think of what happened, you know, with their little flautist? Uh, you'll hear it's pretty, he's pretty wild. If you don't know it, check it out. I, I the section I put up there is a, a really wild flute um, lead in a heavy rock and roll song then you've got frankenstein by uh, edgar winter and his brother who died i think they're both albino twins or something i don't know um don't fear the reaper blue oyster cult that's a strange strange tune and then crazy on you by heart and we wrap it all up with my favorite band from steely dan and one of the one of the bands i still listen to from high school um, Steely Dan, I said my favorite band from Steely Dan, my favorite band from high school, from those years. Uh, only a fool would say that. All right. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hope you enjoy the mashup or are able to just jump right over it if you don't. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'll check you next week.
ready he says yes and then wait immediately We're good yes sir all right i'm here in los angeles with uh thad russell uh renegade historian all around um ornery grumpy middle-aged professorial guy i was going to call you grumpy old man because that was the theme of the last <laughs> podcast i recorded in which i am the grumpy old man mm-hmm. And we were discussing, uh, I think our conclusion was that, first of all, I was a grumpy young man, so mm-hmm. it's not a big, it's not the fact that I'm getting old that's making me grumpy. And uh, the second thing we concluded was that the grumpiness is an appropriate response to the current state of affairs. Oh, yeah. If you're not grumpy, you're not thinking. That's exactly sure, it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm grumpy I mean, all the time. F- there's a fucking bumper sticker. Proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was born grumpy, <laughs> motherfuckers. Um, so Thad Russell, uh, professor, esteemed professor at, uh, where, Hardly. The, where Occidental is it? Yeah. Part-time adjunct proletariat. Okay. Proletariat. Yeah. The, yeah. the uh, easily fired. So we have to be exactly. careful. Non-tenured. Contingent. Yeah. Yeah. At, at will employee. It's so. amazing. And it's not your will that we're at. Well. I mean, it is. You can always quit. In but. this case, mostly my will. I, I was turned down for a yet another tenure track job there um, uh, rec- two years ago. But it's mostly because I don't want to be a full-time professor. I want to do my own stuff. So it's fairly mutual. And your um, own stuff is what? Masturbating and what else? A lot of jerking off. Um, you know, I'm trying to watch as much porn as possible. <laughs> That's <clears throat> admirable. Which go well. Those go well together. Are you studying yeah. it? or Because, you know, when I was working Actually, on I Sex do, at Dawn, yeah. I was just like, this is work. Oh, yeah. You know, I can write this off. <laughs> I say that all the time <laughs> to my girlfriend. Um, 
Yeah, well, working baby. Well, actually, don't, don't come in here. Actually, I mean, I think porn is one of the great un- understudied um, areas in our culture. I mean, now yeah. there's you know there's this new dr- academic journal you know, about porn studies. No. it's out of Britain. Um, oh, really? Yeah, first academic journal devoted to it. Uh, but my God, I mean, if you want to like look at the collective unconscious of a society, what better place to look than pornography, right? Yeah, I and mean, this is. These are the submerged desires that we all have. Um, and arguably the earliest uh, human-like artifact that's ever been found hmm. may have been some sort of prehistoric mm-hmm. porn. The, okay. the Venus of Willendorf or, of, you know, there are all these Venus figurines in Eastern Europe. Some have hypothesized that those were um, certainly erotic, eroticized mm-hmm. objects with the huge breasts and buttocks mm-hmm. and all that. Not – it's sort of a Kardashian – Ish. That's too many syllables. Kardashianish. <laughs> How is it Kardashianish? How is it Kardashianish? Uh, because the the breasts and the ass are extremely uh, oh. exaggerated. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. There's a great book about the history of pornography um, called The Secret Museum, which I just the title alone I think says everything. I think it's a wonderful title. It really tells you what it's about. It's this phenomenal, vast underground secret archive of people's thoughts, wishes, desires, mm. right? That we don't ever talk about. Is right? it about an actual museum? No, no, no. Or, it's, oh, no, it's, no it's, it's, that's what he, that's how he uh, portrays oh, pornography okay. as this vast secret museum, right. which is exactly right, I think. You know? Right. Um, you know, ev- as far as we can tell, everybody watches it and no one talks about it. Yeah. It's really phenomenal. And the viewing stats tend to be, from what I've read, the the most frequent viewing um, statistics are from the most repressive states and countries. Yeah, so I'm actually, the book I'm working on now, um, a lot of it is on, um, It's well, it's on sort of Western and in particular American popular culture and how it's been diffused abroad. And um, I've been looking at, you know, sort of especially American popular culture in the Middle East, right? right. And sort of the cultural conflict going on there. So sort of Islamists every day are much more worried about Britney Spears and Kim Kardashian and porn than they are about the 82nd Airborne. I mean, because they understand that that stuff is really going to subvert the culture that they want to create. Right. But yeah, in doing that research, I mean, I found that the uh, Pakistan for several years in a row has led all nations in searches for the word sex. <laughs> Google has a ranking. But, yeah, when you're when you're searching sex, you're a Google novice. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, because you quickly move beyond to like you know hairy Latinas <laughs> right. and stuff. It's like, but then that's but then for, that's real yeah. entry level. But then Googling for more specific right stuff, the Middle East yeah. is leading the way too. So you've got lots of searches for like anal sex. Is, right. in, I mean, or I should say that the 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 leading countries for those searches are in the most of them are in the Middle East, and then also. I'm sure you know this in in the U.S. The so-called red states tend to lead the right. way there like as well. Utah, sure, yeah. yeah. yeah um, so yeah, I love seeing those rankings of porn. What was that book that came out recently? A, uh, a million wicked thoughts or something like know. that. You don't know. Oh, you you should check that okay. for your research. It's because it's two sociologists who are um, you know studying sexuality. Through Google stats, hmm. through search engine results, it's it's called a billion wicked thoughts. I think. Great. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, That's really great. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like. Three That's what I'm talking old. about. That's what should be right. done now. More of that. We need much, much more of that. Right. We need to take this thing seriously. Right. But I was going to say, so yes, in repressive culture, so-called so-called repressive cultures, you know, ones run by 
Islamic fundamentalists and one's run by Republicans, sure. But I mean, <laughs> what's the fucking difference? Well, no, but in this, right, not much there. But I want to say that in so-called liberal places, right, there's yeah. a whole bunch of repression too. I mean, yeah. For instance, the university, you know, where I spend much of my time. I mean, it's a highly repressive culture. I mean, we talk about sex a little bit more, but in, for the most part, we don't. It's there's still you know, what has been called the great Victorian silence or the great bourgeois silence about sex, you know, operates um, powerfully, even in, in, yeah. my, in my provinces, right? So it's, it's yeah. everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere and it's nowhere simultaneously. That's what's so fascinating about it, right? Sex and pornography right. in particular. What's that? There's a line, uh, I think psychologists say and psychiatrists, it's like, I think it's everything is about sex mm-hmm. except sex, which is about everything. Right. Yeah, right, sure. I mean, this is what psychoanalysts have been saying for, you know, a century or so, right? Yeah. It's like, this is what we think about all the time, yet we are also forbidden from speaking it, right? It's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, on mm-hmm. the two the two huge taboos, you know, well, maybe three, I'm thinking sex, death, and shitting mm-hmm. are, seem to be the... Th- and Mark Twain had that great line about... Um, yeah, the pleasures in the ple- list of pleasures of life, sex is highly overrated, and and taking a satisfying dump is the most underrated. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Leave it to Mark Twain. I'm sure. paraphrasing there. He sure. said it much better than I did. Yeah. Um, but it's it's funny. You ever see that uh, Luis Buñuel film where everyone's sitting around the table? I, it's it might be the obscure Angel of Desire. Um, where every, it opens with a, like this fancy dinner party, right? There's the bishop and the mayor and the generals and all the fancy people in Bunuel's films. And um, there's a big table and they're all sitting around the table. And over like three or four minutes, you're, you're, you're engaged in the conversation, what they're talking about. But the camera pans back and you realize that everyone's sitting on a toilet. <laughs> and they're all just sitting on toilets together. And then it cuts to a guy all alone in a little room, nervously eating. And you see the whole, he's just flipped it, you know? It's right. like, because it's completely fucking arbitrary. Why is shitting shameful and eating isn't? Yeah. And then you go someplace like India. I remember I was in Pushkar, India one time, and um, I'm walking down the street, and I just had a bang lassi, which is like a mm-hmm. hash brownie sort of. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was really high, but in a mellow kind of edible way. And it was it was actually a really important moment for me because I had been in India for maybe six weeks, and I fucking hated it. Hmm. It drove me crazy. All the people asking me for money mm-hmm. and attention, and hey, Mister, hey, look, hey, blah, blah, blah. I can imagine. I just couldn't yeah. take it, you know. And so I, was in, I went to this little village in the desert, Pushkar, beautiful place, and I was drinking these lassies every day and just buzzing out. And I'm walking home one day, and this cow walks by me and just. It looked at me, and something about the rhythm, the slowness, and calm of this cow, I got it. And I was like, ah, ah, I get it. I see why cows are sacred here. You know, it's like, it's so zen and so chilled. And then I walk a little further, and there's this old lady who was taking a dump by the side of the road. And as I walk by, she looks at me, no shame at all, looks me right in the eye, smiles, and holds out her hand for some change. Right. <laughs> and it's like, okay, now yeah. I get this place. I mean, these taboos we're talking about are especially powerful, or maybe they exist only in the West, 
right? These are Western taboos. Well, there are other taboos there, right? Sure, but, you know, but only about, use your left hand. But about the right ones hand. you're talking about, yeah, sex, death, and, and shitting. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. They're especially yeah. powerful in the West. You're right, and in India, they're subverted. I mean, the whole death thing is yeah. celebrated and in Mexico, Varanasi. Right. Yeah, for, the day for of the instance, dead, which is right. right here, right yeah. next to us, right? Yeah. Um, but so, you know, I've been teaching uh, right now, I'm teaching uh, the history of sexuality in the United States, which it's a course I've taught for several years. Wow, now. I'd love to monitor that. It's a blast. And how many can, students? I got 30 in it, uh-huh. which is the max for oh, Occidental. Okay. That's the biggest class we have. Right. Um, but, um, you know, and it's the, que- the question that I still can't fully answer is. Why do we have this taboo about sex? Like, what well, that, is it? About yeah, sex? well, that's what that's, well, that's so what scary, I was thinking right? about. Yeah. So, sex, death, and shitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I had a, theory, a student just last week uh, offered a theory about why it's defecation. He actually brought up defecation. Oh, okay. And its possible connection. He got it from somewhere else. I don't know where he got it from. But uh, defecation. The connections between the taboos about defecation and about sex maybe have to do with the location of the genitalia. Well, and, I and the w- anus, right? that the proximity could, of that the two. could be, but I would argue that the underlying uh, feature of those and, taboos is that all three of them subvert the notion that we are something other than animals. All three of them, like there's a sense in which we're immortal, we're angels, we're exempt from the laws of mm-hmm. nature, we're here to, hmm. to you know, shepherd nature and oh, all exactly. that. Exactly. Oh, that's what we share with animals, those three things. Those three things yes. all remind us, yes. like, no, you're nothing special, you're right. just another th- animal I that shits. And, yeah, I think that's at least a part of it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah the absolutely. biological. It's animalistic. And right. It's, they're also sort of irrational, right? Yeah. I think sex is especially scary because it's irrational. Um, oh, I get irrational it's, it's, when I shit, man. <laughs> well, in a way, yeah, I suppose. Um, By the way, can I use your bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, just don't shit in there. I'll, I'll, clean, I'll clean it up later. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Anywho. So, <laughs> although that doesn't really quite connect to death. I don't know. And also then why are we so in love with drinking, you know, which is so disorderly and irrational, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know. Um, but not hallucinogens. Yeah, exa- which are yeah, exactly. A higher the- level chaos, yeah, of sort course. of. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so you're. T- I interrupted you. You're talking about your course. Uh, no, that's oh, that's oh, it. Yeah. That you, oh, the quest. This question, the question about why, why there has why there is so much basically fear about sex. Right. Right. Like we're afraid to talk about it. We're afraid to confront it. We're afraid to think about it in some ways. Well, isn't it? I mean, could it be as simple as the idea that when you've got institutions that want to control human behavior and interaction, the first thing they do is take something that's very, you know, it's like if I want to control you, I, I kidnap your kid, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I don't kidnap your third cousin. Mm-hmm. I kidnap some something that's the most important to you that you will sacrifice the most in order to have some connection to. Right. And so sexuality is right there, you know? Like if, if we co-opt sexuality, we've got you by the balls, literally. Mm-hmm. If you know you can't fuck without our permission, that's mm-hmm. you know Catholicism certainly in most religions. Yeah. Y- you know you can't uh, marry without our permission. You can't uh, you know your whatever inheritance is also tied into it. Mm-hmm. To me, I see it as a as a sort of you know basic maneuver for control. Sure, uh, yeah, I mean it's the it's control of reproduction. 
Um, it's control, of love. It's control of the body, yeah. most fundamentally. Right. Um, like that's why masturbation was was yeah. you know prohibited. You go to the doctor to get masturbated, but you can't do it to yourself because it's got to be controlled. Yeah, I think it. Yes, I think it's all true. I think it also has to do with productivity. Um, in other words, you know, sex has always been seen as the as the uh, counterpoint or antagonistic to productivity. Right. If you're mm-hmm. having sex or thinking about it. It's, it's completely individualistic, for one thing, right? Right. And it's non-productive, right? And it's unless gotta it's, be... Unless it's reproductive. Re, that's what I was going to say. It's so got to I mean, be reproductive. Meaning recreational sex is right. what is always and the gay object. Sex. The object, yeah. yes, which is always recreational, and that's the problem right. with gay sex, right? Right. Um, so that's why it's always been the object of fear and attacks and control, right? Um, so... And if you look at, I mean, a lot of my, you know, my book, Renegade History, you know, doc talks about the founding fathers being very concerned about sex and one of them, Benjamin Rush, being obsessed with it and writing pamphlets and books after, yeah. after books after books about it, and and including was, masturbation. He was the first Surgeon General of the United States. Yeah. And, and he, who, there's who, a medical center in Philadelphia named after him. He signed a Declaration yeah. of Independence. He's a big deal. And then there was another one, early 20th century, real asshole, New York State. Uh, um well, begin with an S. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, who who sort of made it illegal to, to like mail things oh, across state um, lines and mm-hmm. went after Margaret Sanger? Yes, you know I'm, what I'm talking yes, about. Of course, I'm just blanking on his yeah, name. Yeah, we'll, we'll law was a law was passed a banned uh, pornographic or anything related to birth control or sex from the mails. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Comstock. Yeah. Comstock. Anthony Comstock. Exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's a long tradition in the United States. I mean, Comstock, as far as I know, I don't know if he drew that connection between work and sex. I don't think he, he was much of an intellectual, but the founders mm. were, right? I mean, I hate them and they <laughs> disagree with them profoundly, but but they were smart guys and they sort of understood why sex had to be controlled, right? And so, you know, if you're thinking about sex, if you're doing it, you're not being productive, you're, productive, you're not being rational, you're not being disciplined, you're not being orderly, you're not being a good citizen. So they understood, and this, right. is, this is something one of my students said, and this is quite radical, um, but I think she right, was right, um, democracy hates sex. <laughs> because mm. democracy, and this is what the founder's argument was, um, requires intense self-discipline, right? If you're going to run this place instead of the king, right, you've got to, like, stop fucking around you got to stop drinking you got to stop fornicating you've got to stop playing you've got to start studying and working and managing but that doesn't explain yeah, the problem why the ruling class has always had a pass an exemption from these rules about sex not true at all oh come on in this country name me a president who wasn't fucking as much as name- he wanted to Wait, hold on now. Wait a I mean, second. What got... happened to Bill Clinton? First of all, when well, the very... okay, I'm talking about in the day. I'm not talking about. <laughs> oh yeah, but it was all secret. Frenzy. It was all secret. Well, secret, if we had... secret to the extent that like nobody gave a shit. Like, no, no one knew anything. And well, the journalists knew. Bill Clinton was the first person we knew anything. First president we knew anything about his sex life, right? Well, and what happened? He you, you really don't think came the people down. around Kennedy knew that he was fucking. Marilyn no, but no Monroe? one outside of his inner circle did. That was the whole point. Well, and the the media knew. Well, they, yeah, but they, they just didn't, didn't talk they didn't, about. That's what I mean, right? So that's what I'm saying so to 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 have any kind of public power in this country you have to be sexless publicly right publicly. i mean it's incredible yeah. what yeah. happens to po- politicians the slightest hint of sexuality is a huge problem for them um hillary clinton during 2008 right this i don't know if you remember this or you even noticed this but like um she gave this little sort of obscure speech about some bill it had nothing to do with the campaign on the Senate floor, and the C-SPAN cameras happened to catch like two inches of cleavage, <laughs> and it was and it was a thing. It was a it's thing, like, like appropriate. Yeah, it was a thing, yeah. right? And so, especially women, but I think all politicians have to be completely sexless publicly, yeah. right? And they understand that. 
I mean, how many politicians have gone, have gone down, so to speak, um, for, you know, just going to a strip club? I mean, it's incredible. There was a guy, Ryan. He was Yeah, the, Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. Who Illinois, ran against Obama. He dropped out of the race because it yeah. turns out he went to a strip club. No, like, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I know about this case because okay. I'm Ryan. What did he do? I'm Ryan, what right? Terrible... I noticed it at the oh, okay, time. Okay, okay. So what happened was he was married to a woman who was a newscaster. Jer- I thought it was Jerry Ryan, the Star Trek woman. She was a, oh, okay. she wasn't Star Trek, okay. but then she was like a Chicago newscaster. Okay. I don't know which came first, okay. but she was a public figure mm-hmm. in Chicago, right? And so he's married to her. He's running against Obama. He's far better positioned. He's got more money. He's going to win, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And then, I don't know, two months before or a month before the election, he drops out. The reason was that a newspaper in Chicago or some news organization had filed a Freedom of Information Act to get access to his divorce records because they had divorced. Mm -hmm. And she had never publicly said anything about it. But the problem was that he kept luring her into swingers clubs. Mm -hmm. And not telling her, trying to get her interested in swinging. So he'd be like, they were in Paris, and he'd be like, oh, let's go for a drink. And they'd walk in, and like, hey, there are people fucking everywhere. And she's like, I told you, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do this. He did it like three times, yeah. and finally she was like, well, dude, fuck you. Okay, same, same. So it wasn't point a strip club. But yeah, but it was it's same, same point, exactly, right? I mean, which is exactly. that you know, any hint of sexuality, especially anything that's right. even remotely deviant. Yeah. Uh, but even, even, <laughs> even heterosexual. But once you're in. As a Republican, you're fine. No. I mean, well, what are the guy, what? David Vitter. David Vitter. He was the, uh, the D.C. Madams. He was in her book. And he publicly admitted with his wife and, that and he was... Was he not punished for that? No, he was, he's still in the Senate. He was, he he's was, still in the Senate. He was roundly attacked. Oh, Crit- roundly sure. attacked is punishment sure. now? Well, then I've well, been, been spanked. Shaming? Shaming is not punishment? Not if you don't lose your seat in the Senate or he your almost, committee seat. He almost did. Oh, come on. For, for something that's completely... The you and I would think is... Absolutely Newt irrelevant. Gingrich. Wait, Newt on. Gingrich is fucking his secretary while his <laughs> wife is dying of cancer in the hospital and he's leading the charge against Clinton for the blowjob. And that comes out. And what the hell happens to him? Nothing. He runs yeah, for president. Came out, that came out later. Yeah, came I know. After. But he ran for president after. And people took him seriously. And what happened to him? He, he got well, cr- he crushed. Was, he wasn't going to win No, come anyway. on, Chris. You, un- you, He's a you have to admit. Everyone hates wait, that wait, guy. Wait, wait, wait. You have to admit that politicians must keep their sex lives I, under I, wraps. I think there's a big difference between Democrats and Republicans in this respect. Uh-huh. I think that Republicans forgive and Democrats. I mean, look. Okay, David Vitter was publicly, we know this, uh-huh. uh, he's into wearing diapers and peeing in his diapers and having the hooker change we, his diapers. We know this? We know this. Okay. Right? How, how do we know this? Because I haven't the, seen this. Because but... the hooker said it. Okay, I'll take your word On for it. On the other because side. Because the hooker said it. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I trust the hooker more than a senator, I'll tell you that. Oh, I do too. So yeah. on the other side, you've got, uh, you know, Spitzer, boom, gone. You've got uh, Wiener, like, he, he's not even fucking anyone. He's just, you know, oh, there's a picture of my dick in my underwear. Wait, you, you seem to gone. think, wait, 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 wait. You seem to think that Republicans have more power generally than Democrats? No, no. I, oh. th- I think that what happens is that if you're Republican and you're Christian, you can, like, say, oh, I'm sorry, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you get a second chance. And you get forgiven because you're a good Christian mm-hmm. man and you're bringing, doing whatever it is you need to do for your constituents. And they don't really give a shit. Well, I- Whereas on the left... Because it's all personality and identity politics and all that bullshit, you never get forgiven. And we're still talking about Clinton's blowjob 20 years later, whereas nobody talks about David Vitter or you know these other things. Perhaps. I mean, my, my, my point is that, that, <laughs> that 
um, the founders said we must be puritanical in order to have a democracy. Really? They, like yeah, Benjamin yes. Franklin and Thomas yes, Jefferson? absolutely. Jefferson, weren't they all, like all of them. No, that was, yeah. horn dogs? Uh, to various degrees, sure, but not publicly, right? And that couldn't be that couldn't be known. I mean, everybody's a horn dog, but it can't be known. Is the point? But wasn't like and you Benjamin to, Franklin recommending that, like young men should fuck old women, and wasn't that in his like advice to a young marriage or something? He was mostly recommending that we work all the time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> most so famously, that. that's what he, I mean. Sure, yeah. people talk about his air, his nudity and stuff, but like, and he was a little bit of an outlier, right? But you know, the core founding fathers were to a man and they were all banging their slaves puritanical well many for sure but yeah mm-hmm. but again so that's I mean it, but that's the argument they made and I thought they were right you know mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's carried through so today right you understand mm-hmm. that you have to you have to show that you're a paragon of discipline yeah to win an election right I mean you really must do that in this country which is so funny because but they're all hypocrites of course a, well they're hypocrites but, and it doesn't fucking matter who wins the elections I think that well, we that, agree on that. Right? Mostly, yeah. Yeah. For, so, yes, yes, I do agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So it's so democracy is actually hostile <laughs> to sex. That's a, that's a tough thing for people to take. But I, that, no, is, that is one of my but arguments. But capitalism isn't. So I, capitalism I, is, has a split on this, yeah. right? So Daniel Bell, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. I, we may have talked about this in the last one of the podcasts before, but, you know, his argument, which I think is right, is that capitalism has a, has a dual personality in a sense, right? It produces these two contradictory cultures, right. which, is makes it so, which is what makes it so fascinating to me. Right. One is the highly puritanical side, which is the production side, the, where the work is, where the management is, right? You've got to get up every fucking day at the same time, and you have to mm. stay in your cubicle or at the right. assembly line all day long, and your body does not want to do that. Right? right. And that requires intense sort of violence against the body. And zero sexual interaction. And zero. At work. Right. So Max Weber said that was the first thing that capitalism had to do was crush the sexual drive. Right. Right. To or channel it, and Freud said it had to be channeled into productive work. Right. Sublimated. Right. So capitalism, half of capitalism, is intensely, violently hostile to sex for sure. The production side of it, but simultaneously, what what are you doing all day in your cubicle? You're producing stuff that is aimed directly at our basest desires, right? Whiskey and condoms and Britney Spears and all the rest of it, right? So that's the hedonistic consumer side of it, it's right. consumption side of it. So the consumption side of capitalism is completely hedonistic and anti-puritanical, and it is operating always simultaneously in antagonism with the productive side. That's a, it's like it's, an engine. It's amazing, it's, yeah. yeah. It's like, an engine that sort of fights itself, but also grows from that conflict. Right. It's a dialectic, in a way. It'd be it's a, great, a fascinating thing. It'd be a great like TV show, right, about somebody... Yeah. Like like the office politics and the sort of anti-sex uh, antagonistic uh, environment at work... In a dildo factory. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the, the example I use, I can't remember if I told you this before, but um, I used to, just by coincidence, live about four blocks from the world headquarters of Girls Gone Wild when it was a big oh, thing, right. you know, back then. Yeah. And, you know, and I actually ended up knowing a guy who worked there. And I was like, ah, oh, so what's it like working in the Girls Gone Wild office? I mean, I sort of assumed it, you know, but kind of, and jokingly, it's a, it's a, it's a bunch of fucking cubicles and people like sitting at a keyboard being bored yeah. and wishing they were elsewhere doing other things all day long. I said, right. of course it is, right? But what they're producing all day long, you know, is the, anti- is the antithesis of right. capitalist puritanism, right? I worked for a porn company. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure it's the same there too, right? 
I, I had a good gig, man. I'll tell you, it was right. I, but you're not like it's not like hot tubs and chicks in bikinis. And, no, no, yeah, I worked champagne at, at home and, in my underwear and cocaine. You know, doing lines off of your <laughs> Mac, Mac Macintosh laptops and stuff. Um, no, it's it's work. No, that's now. Here's the funny thing. Like yeah. like flip the whole thing over, mm-hmm. right? You get the coke on your laptop and the and the chicks and the mm-hmm. the yachts and all mm-hmm. that when you work at the bank, which is the least sexy place in the world. You work on Wall Street. What? You do? Sure. Well, not, not like a teller at Chase branch. I'm talking about on Wall Street. Well, you know, no, no, these no. The, you the, do, the lords you do of the when world. work is over. You do when work is over. Those guys yeah. are not. You no, know, those guys work harder than anyone. No, they don't. Sure, of course they do. No, they don't. Let's go again. <laughs> work harder than anyone. Of course they oh, do. You're, uh, you, of all people, are an apologist for Wall Street I'm not dicks. an apologist at all. I can't stand it. They them. work harder than anyone? Yeah. Tell me about the fucking gold miners in South Africa, you know, or... They you know, were, the guy pumping gas at the fucking Arco. Come I, on. I can nearly guarantee you that the high-level executives in all corporations work more hours than almost anyone on earth. If you consider stressing not, out about nonsense to be worked, that is not an apology. Right. That is why I am not one of them, right. by the way. <laughs> oh. I'm just saying that do, the, you, do you have that capacity? Could you have been a oh, Wall Street? Oh, God, no. No, that's that's <laughs> the reason number one I chose not to do that. Oh, okay. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I thought it was no, like, no, no. that's why I'm not in the I, NBA. Like, so yeah, I don't yeah. hate them. I pity them. Uh, Actually, no, of course they work like like animals. Yeah. I mean, every cor- I've known a lot of Wall Street guys, and they all work 60, 80 hours a week. That's what they tell you. They but do. But they're doing coke at the office. Then, and, yeah. absolutely, when right. the 80 hours is over, they go nuts. Yeah. And, it's, and it's bullshit. I mean, like work, because I know a lot of guys on Wall Street. Sure. And, you know, it's, come on. It's bullshit. Who gives a fuck? Oh, you know, the percentage, the ratio, the blah, 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 blah. fuck you, get a job. I, I you know, they're, well, they're 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 contributing absolutely nothing to society as far as I'm concerned. They're just extractors. They're sucking value out of society that would otherwise go into retirement accounts and you know pension plans and blah blah blah. And they're sending it offshore and then they're going on their fucking miserable yachts and whining and complaining and fucking overpriced Russian whores. That's that's what I think about Wall Street. Well, here's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have lives that are not enviable, A, right. and oh, yeah. B, I would like to stop subsidizing them. There you go. End corporate welfare, stop bailing them out. Right. And I think that's here, something here. And that's something the left and the right actually can and have agreed on. Right. So let's leave it at that. Okay. But, but not enviable, right? We don't want to. No. Do hell Good no. Lord. I mean, hell, hell no. no. I'll take, you know. That's why they make so much money. Yeah, but because there's lives no are amount so of money miserable. you could pay me. There's no amount of money you could pay me to live like that. And yeah. I've known many of them, and I I was around them, and I just thought you are a miserable dude. And yeah. you know, like you're you're gone all the time. You're working all the time. And you know, yes, it's true. On the weekends, they would play golf all day, and then they would get drunk all night. But then they would work eighty hours from Monday to Saturday. Yeah, and they're probably playing golf with guys from work right. and or clients. Yeah, exactly. So it's and not talking, even hanging and talking out. shop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's this. I'm. There's a section of the book I'm working on now where um, I I uh, refer to this hilarious situation. Uh, and stop me if we've talked about this before, but it, this uh, filmmaker named Johnny Hughes from BBC Filmmaker hmm. was in Papua New Guinea for a couple of months. And he was living with a, a hunter-gatherer tribe there and made a documentary about them. And at some point, the, some of the guys in the tribe said, hey, Johnny, uh, you know, through a translator, uh, you've, you've seen how we live. We want to come and see how you live. What, what's going on in your world, right? Hmm. So he said, well, you know, 
I'll ask when I get home and see if we can arrange it. So he talks to his bosses at the BBC and they immediately see the value, you know, the commercial Mm -hmm. value in this. So they fly, I think, four or five of these guys uh, from Papua New Guinea to London. But first, Johnny, Johnny's like freaked out. Like, what am I doing here? This is going to ruin these guys' lives. They're going to come and see all this fantastic stuff we have. They're not going to want to go back. It's going to be a mess, right? So first thing he does is consults with some anthropologists. And like I think it was three anthropologists, and all three of them said the same thing to him, which essentially was, you dumbass, you think they're going to envy your world? Give me a fucking break. They've got their own world, their own values. They're going to come here. This is going to be completely alien to them. Don't worry. You're, what you're worried about is just a sign of your arrogance and narrow-mindedness. So they come, and uh, he, like sets, he puts some of them in like buddies' houses and stuff like that. And one of them there at this guy's house, there are two or three of them there. And one morning at breakfast, the, you know, the father husband is like hurriedly eating his breakfast and okay, you know, grab his briefcase. I got to go. And they say, why, why does he leave every day? <laughs> you know, he leaves in the morning. He doesn't come home till <laughs> night. Where does he go? And they, well, he's working. Why? What, what, well, because, you know, you have to raise money to pay for all this stuff. Like, you know, the house, for example. The house, really? And how, how many days does he have to work to pay for the house? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they said 30 years. And they're like, are you fucking kidding me? 30 years to pay for a house? You know, I, I want a house. I get together with my friends and, like, two days I've got a house. Mm-hmm. So, like, this idea of value and work, the you know, this, the dignity of work. Yeah. Right. What a bunch of bullshit. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, so there, you know, there's people get confu- confused about what the Protestant work ethic is. It's not working as a means to an end. It's not working to get something else. That's just common sense. Right. It's, it's you, the you have to itself. put in work to get stuff, yeah. right? It's work in itself is a good thing. You know, in its mm. original form, it's work in itself was godly. And now right. it's now it's sort of secularized, so that it's just uh, it's good, right? It's, right? it's a cultural norm. And that's you know, especially powerful in the UK and here, yeah, in the US. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and that that is clearly no good. That makes no sense. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, it makes no sense for us. So here's the question, and, and this is something I'm grappling with in the book right now, and maybe you can help me with this. Um, we're obviously in a situation where uh, the the configuration of the world as it is is antagonistic to the values and needs of the human organism. So work is an example. Shame around sex is an example. Okay. Shame around shitting is an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the fracturing of social units where we're all living in our little isolated yes. houses. Each. The nuclear family. Right. Yes. So all these things are go against what we actually need as animals. And I'm at the point where I'm thinking, um, you know, the the current framing of this is the 99% against the 1%. This is all, it's it's all the money's going to the top and there are these CEOs and Wall Street assholes and hedge fund guys. They're getting all the benefit from the suffering that the rest of us are withstanding. Now, but I know those guys, as you do, and as we've just said, they're miserable. Yeah. So they're not winning. Right. We're obviously not winning. So who or what <laughs> is winning? 
You know, the, the, uh, the oh, thing wait, is, that's easy. Uh, God is what I'm, <laughs> I'm serious. And who's God? What is God? Well, I, to me, you know, much of our culture is sort of secularized Christianity, meaning it's the same moral structure, just without the the superstition stuff, without the you know, without this, without, yeah. without God, right, right. But it's the same moral structure. I mean, the New Testament is basically American culture. You know, I mean, that's really if you the the structure of our culture is still it's basically Christian, um, and that goes for by the way. For liberals, maybe even more, in my view, than for what we call conservatives. But get, wait, get, get into this. The <clears throat> New yes, so Testament. So the New Testament is not the evil, the capricious Job, Book of Job. This is Jesus as a yeah. humanitarian. It's selflessness. It is asceticism. Um, these are the things that are valued in our formal culture, not the hedonistic side of capitalism, but the formal culture, like what, where our politicians and our teachers and our businessmen operate publicly. But they're not selfless. Publicly. They're all about profit no, pub- and fuck the pu- poor. Publicly. Publicly. But publicly, they're about fuck the poor. No, no. <laughs> well, that's not what they say. What they say is, right, that we should all be, we should all be working hard no matter what we get for it, right? right? Um, their po- we can disagree about what their policies actually end up doing, right. but they're presented as serving the work ethic, right? So that's, that was the argument against welfare, right. which, by the way, right. was a liberal argument. That was Bill Clinton, by the way. If you yeah. call him a liberal. Well, yeah. right, yeah. yeah. So, but anyway, yeah. So, but um, right. it was absolutely about the dignity of work, yeah, and still is, right? So that's why right. we no longer have welfare. Um, when now we have, what is it called? Workfare. Sorry. Workfare, right. Um, so, you want to pause? I, yeah. And now it's running again. That's fucking. You want to listen to it? And nah, it doesn't matter. We'll just rock and roll. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. We just, Thad and I just like went off on a really good tangent there. And I looked down, I don't know if it was 15 minutes, I looked down at the thing and the numbers weren't running. So, sorry, folks, you're, you're missing out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably better I don't talk about that anyway because it's it's something no, I in like the it. book. I like it a lot. All right, you like it. Well, thank you. You need to read Foucault. I mean, oh that's, that's fuck, man! At. I was afraid you were going to say that. Yeah. I I hate postmodernism. I just you gotta hate read, it. History of sexuality. You got to read that, man. It's easy for one thing. It's pretty short for is another. It? Oh, is that, I thought it was a multi-volume. It is, but the only, just read volume one. That's a, the oh. only thing anyone ever reads. Oh, um, oh okay. and it's it's short and easy. My students read it. It's no problem. Um, and it's but it's man, it's the history of sexuality. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> I know, but you but, know, but I got enough of that in college that it scarred me for life. But more importantly, your theory about the spirit is in there. Oh, it's for him. It's discursive power. Yeah, maybe it's better if I don't read it, so no one could say, "Ah, you just took Foucault," and you know. Eh, blah, blah. No, well, maybe. But you ever I, get that when you're when you're writing something and then you come upon some research that's like, "Oh shit, I thought that was my idea." <laughs> well. <laughs> In a way, I mean, that's all I ever do. I mean, I, I'm, you know, well, I, I mean, what I do is I pull together other people's sort of individual discrete ideas and pull mm. them together into a big argument, you mm. know? So it's like, there's almost nothing in, in Renegade that hasn't been said elsewhere. It's right. just that it's never been put together into, to serve this particular yeah. argument. Same yeah. thing in Sex at Dawn. Yeah. I didn't right. do any, sure. I've never met yeah. a gorilla and in my life. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Well, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, in fact, it's great. As long as you're respectful of the people who are doing the well, original research. Well, as long as long as you use it honestly. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, 
But I mean, many times I will use someone's evidence for a different argument right. than the one they're making. Sure. Sorry. I mean, I, I yeah. got a lot of shit for that in Sex at Dawn. Like, you know, oh, you're citing so-and-so talking about this, but <clears throat> they said that. Like, well, you think I agree with everything everyone said that I quote in this book? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. I, I've had a, uh, at a, at a big faculty seminar at Columbia. I had one of my advisors actually say that to me. Um, and then another advisor of mine said, Come on, Eric. We all do that. Oh, good. <laughs> Yelled at him. Thank God. And it was good. But uh, so, what are you writing now? What's, yeah, what's this book? Well, it's it's um, it's a book about America abroad, uh, the history. You could say it's American foreign policy, the history of American foreign policy, but it's not just foreign policy. It's it's about America's interaction with the world over the last hundred and twenty or thirty years. So it includes foreign policy and the wars and all that stuff, but. The one of the things I'm doing that hasn't been done is I'm kind of tracing <clears throat> uh, how American popular culture has spread across the world right. um, and and its effects on the world, in particular its effects on sort of authoritarian regimes elsewhere. So, you know, people have done pieces of this. They've done stuff on Eastern Europe, and there's a chapter in Renegade on rock and roll and jazz and blue jeans in Eastern Europe and how it bas- the argument is basically that it brought down communism. Right. Uh, not Ronald Reagan and not MX missiles, but that stuff. So, but, uh, my publisher wanted me to tell the whole story, um, you know, beginning with like the Spanish American war and, you know, I found jazz going into the Philippines right after that Uh. and jazz took off in the Philippines and Filipinos started to identify with African Americans profoundly in a lot of ways. And they're still known as the niggers of Asia. Um, and right now, like the third largest basketball professional league in the world is the Philippines basketball league. No kidding. Um, and then you sort of see kind of this development of kind of these, these sort of anti-authoritarian subversive countercultures that begin with American influences, but they never stay American. They always become hybridized. Right. Mm. So you see over and over again, kind of like an American pop culture form get mixed with indigenous forms of culture and become something new, but it's almost always subversive and almost always considered to be a threat by the regimes in power. Um, so in the Middle East, it's happening all the time and it's really yeah. exciting what's going on. I mean, the revolution in the Middle East, the war on terror will be won through satellite dishes. You know, what's going on, what's being streamed into those big apartment buildings in Tehran and yeah. Riyadh. I mean, the mullahs over there hate that. They're freaking out, and they're issuing fatwas every day against uh, popular culture coming in from elsewhere. And, and ir- Iranian culture is oh. quite progressive. Oh, it's fascinating and, what's going and on. Like, what is the percentage of people it's, under 30? It's like it's, 70% or what's something. What's going on in Iran right now is just so exciting and so yeah. amazing. So just two weeks ago, uh, the regime um, gathered together something like, 5,000 or 10,000 satellite dishes that they had like ripped down from apartment buildings. They put them all into a big soccer stadium and then destroyed them all during this big public ceremony, right? Which tells you that they're losing, right? (laughs) which tells you that they're freaking out about this. They know that this is what's going to bring them down eventually. But I'm, I've been studying Iran quite a bit from abroad. I haven't been there yet, but, um, and it's just an amazing, clearly they are losing big time. So there's this huge women's liberation going on in, in in Iran, which isn't so, it's not kind of explicitly political, but it's just women not wearing the veil and like women wearing clothes that they want to wear to look good on their own terms. Right. And then there's lots of reports coming back of 
women shouting down the so-called fashion police. Mm. There's actually police in Tehran, and that's what they do. They yeah. cruise around and they like, you know, give tickets to or sometimes incarcerate people who aren't wearing what they're supposed to be wearing, right. you know, the hijab or whatever. And there's reports coming back of women increasingly just like shouting them down. Iranian women are tough. And or just and flout, or sexy. Just, or just flouting the laws. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um there's a there's like a real free love orgy yeah, scene right, in Iran. Right, exactly. Yeah, you read I've read that. a lot. Yeah, I know exactly. Like people get sex together parties. in apartments and have sex yep. parties. Yep. Like, holy cow. And there's a huge hip hop scene. There's tattoo parlors are taken off there. Um, there's a huge heavy metal scene. Did you see the Anthony Bourdain uh, show yeah, recently? Exactly. That was pretty good, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, he's always. Great. I like him. He's. he's I love his. No stuff. bullshit guy. I yeah, like him and he's interested in the right questions for me. You know. Yeah, the food has become such a minor part exactly. of that show. Exactly. It's so wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but this is going on all over the place. I mean, Iran. I think it's maybe the starkest. But, yeah. So that's a that's a really interesting book. What do you think is going on with with ISIS? Is this mm. is this uh, another throwback to like we don't want Western values and modernity? Is this a CIA creation? Today I read or I heard on the radio that Egypt is now bombing ISIS training camps in Libya, which makes me think: what if it is a CIA creation trying to get the Arabs involved? Because now you've got Jordan and. Egypt. You know, a straight-up secret CIA conspiracy, I would say it's possible, but mm. they don't need it. <laughs> what, they, what, what is far more effective is destabilizing regimes <laughs> and then having crazy guys like this emerge in those regimes, right. which is exactly what happened. You know, right. is, it, is it a coincidence that these fuckers emerged in Iraq and now Libya and Syria and all these places where the United States has basically destabilized the, you know, the country. Well, not Syria. Cre- well, the West certainly has in many ways, right? Well, yeah, I guess you're right. Assad was a Western sure. creation. Sure, yeah, father. Yeah. Well, and then, and on top of that, you know, the West, including the U.S., did fund the rebels in Syria, so, mm. and has, right? So it's creating a civil war, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's no question. Now, does that explain entirely the emergence of ISIS? No. I mean, yes, there is a sort of a particular... F- form of islam that you know helps explain this but there's no doubt about it that american and western intervention has made it possible for this to happen so you were talking earlier about the this dynamic uh in capitalism of the puritanical energy going in one direction and the you know hedonistic energy going in the other engine and that creates this Mm -hmm. this engine of of change and development and so on uh, I'm just thinking about Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. which, you know, the upper class of Saudi Arabia has got to be the most hedonistic group of people on the fucking planet. And yet they're funding all this fundamentalist yeah. uh, Islamic teachings in Pakistan and elsewhere. Well, just like our ruling class, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like the Koch brothers. Like, Well, I mean, I don't know if the Koch brothers are hedonistic. I mean, maybe. I just don't know. But it, it, And they're not. It, so the Koch brothers are libertarians. They're not. They're not social conservatives mm. they get they get horribly misbranded i'm not defending them i could give a fuck but they're just misunderstood they're, right you don't have to like libertarianism but they're that's what they are and which is a different animal people a lot of people on the left sort of lump them together with all the bad republicans and actually the Kochs are from a left-wing perspective fantastic on a whole host of issues well how many libertarian candidates caucus with democratic party um uh well i mean so ron paul did it all the time Constantly, he, really? Yeah, oh yeah. He he sponsored co-sponsored bills with Bernie Sanders repeatedly, mm-hmm. Dennis Kucinich, and it's usually the sort of the far left of the Democratic Party, right? 
and that's where you see this coalition, no, like anti-drug stuff yeah, or, or yeah. foreign and intervention, foreign foreign policy, yeah. immigration, drugs, yeah. crime. What do you think of Rand Paul? Prisons. He's a, a very poor man's version of his dad. You know, he's pretty weak. He's not. He's most. <laughs> he must li- love to hear that. Most libertarian. <laughs> well, I mean, meaning that he's not. Most libertarians have disowned him long ago because he's, he's trying to go mainstream. Well, he's, I mean, he's just not. He's li- not libertarian at all in a lot of stuff. Right. Um, so my, I mean, my political project for about ten years now has been to has been trying to bring together kind of the far left and the libertarian right, if you want to call it the right. Which I think is where it's at. And that's Ralph Nader's project. That's what he's about. His new right. book is about that. Um, and Ron Paul was too, very much. You know? And to me, that's where all the exciting stuff is. That's where, if there's anything that we can call freedom, that's what those wings can give us. You know? right. So it's really simple stuff like ending corporate welfare. Like those two agree on that. Right. The left and the right. You know, the libertarian right. <clears throat> it's immigration reform. Open borders. Why do we have borders? You know, just raising that question, right? You're only going to get it from the edges, right? Foreign policy, right? That's endless. Yeah. You know, it's like, why, why do we have one single soldier outside of the borders right, right. now? What, one. Why any what, the bases? Why do we have one single base? Outside? Um, but you're only going to get it from the edges. Yeah. The center agrees. And have the, you ever read Ronald Wright? No. Uh, a Short History of Progress? Mm-mm. That's a great book. Hmm. That's a really good book. It's a, it's a short book, um, basically, where he's... He, he goes through uh, half a dozen different empires, from the Sumerians, the Egyptians, you know, whatever, the Romans, the Greeks, uh, Easter Island, mm-hmm. the Aztecs, the Incas. And he shows how they all go through exactly the same it's, – it's like an organic life cycle, hmm. right? And at sort of post-peak is when you've got the foreign uh, – Fighters all over the place, you know, colonizing and trying to bring, mm-hmm. you know, it's a it's a Ponzi scheme where you're always trying to get value from the margins right. back to the center, right. until it just can't hold anymore right. because it's a it's a process that's unsustainable, and then the center collapses and the whole thing falls apart. It happens again and again and again. So, yeah, so there's the the economic imperative behind imperialism, right? And the thing, the other argument in my new book, um, that called I, what? Do you have a working right title? now? It's called Blood and Freedom. Blood and Freedom. Yeah, that's the working title. Blood. Um, Would you like blood on your freedom flies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of yeah. So the freedom part I talked about, which is you know the diffusion of you know jazz and Hollywood and blue jeans. The blood part is. Of course, our military imperialism, <clears throat> which for me actually stems from progressivism, primarily progressivism. Which right, because you're trying to export your values at the point of a Well, so think about the logic of progressivism, and progressive never do, <laughs> which is that we are obligated to uplift our social inferiors. Right. right? White man's burden. Exactly. Yeah. So now, you know, you're... Contem- your typical contemporary liberal or progressive, whatever you call it, right? Will think this is well. It's no. It's like we're there are poor people in our country, and it's our obligation to make them live better, right? To help them, to lift them up. They won't say lift them up anymore. That's an old term, but that's what it is. Well, okay. So if that's your ob- obligation, if that's our obligation, why does it end at the at the ghetto? You know, in the United States, of course, it extends to the whole world. It's our obligation to uplift everyone, right? Well, okay, if that's true, then we have to go find these people who are poor and and miserable. The problem is there's always people standing in the way of our mission to uplift the poor, right? Now we have to kill them. (laughs) 
We have to kill those oppressors in those other countries and those other places, right? And this is the history of imperialism. It began with the Brits, right? They really invented this thing. The Americans took it up. And this, is, this was the call for the Spanish-American War in 1898. It was the call for World War I in 1917. Right. All this by progressives, by the way. But isn't this just packaging? No, they're true believers. Okay, there are true believers. Absolutely. But I would say that, you know, you give me an example, and, and I think I could probably demonstrate that uh, it's, it's packaging on the economic interests. Mm-mm. Spanish-American War. It's not about you know helping the Cubans and the Filipinos. That's about establishing a base in the Pacific, no. the Monroe Doctrine. It's about the taking over Cuba because you, you know you don't want the Spanish there, and it's easy because the Spanish economy is tanking anyway. So what the fuck? And Teddy Roosevelt needs something interesting to do. Um, it's all, it's packaging. It's like we're going you know we're going to help the Iraqi people. They hate us for our freedoms. Well, no, they don't. Occasionally, sure. It's been it's been presented cynically, of course, no doubt about it. But by and large, no, I don't think so. So Teddy Roosevelt, of course, he didn't need to make any money. He wasn't in this for money. No, he, I'm talking about reputation. When he was with the Rough Riders, he was yeah. making a political comeback. He was yeah, Secretary he, of the Navy he, or something. Why would he do that if he weren't a true believer? I mean, he, he had no well, reason. Because he, was, because he was a true – what I'm trying to say is he was a true believer in the American empire. And the whole we're going to help the poor thing is the varnish over what's really going on, which is we're going to extract resources from your country no, and fuck you he over. Was, no, Teddy was not interested in resources. It was, that was secondary for him. For some, it well, was I bet more the important. people who were hanging out with him were interested in resources because he's hanging out with the guys, you know, the same guys as always. So, we wouldn't go into Guatemala to help the Guatemalans. We so, went in to you know help the United Fruit Company. So here's a little known thing, a little known fact. Uh, a majority of large businesses opposed the Spanish-American War and opposed the annexation of the Philippines. They opposed it. Why mm. would business? And, and by by the way, businesses generally have opposed war. Why would businesses oppose war? Now, cer- certainly, some businesses were all about the war, like right. sugar interests, right, right? In that case, right. right? Or oil companies. More recently, of course, General Electric. Sure, of yeah. course. Well, defense contractors, which are yeah. almost not even businesses, right? They're just wings of the state, right? Because they de- depend yeah. entirely on the state. Right? Yeah. Um, no, but businesses generally don't want war because it's disruptive of the of trade. Right, it disrupts things. It t- also takes away their workers. Well, unless it's securing their supply chain, yeah, which is what a lot of these wars cases, are. If you, are, if your, if your business is tied in, you know, some particular specific way to war making, sure. No, I, I mean to resources. So if if your business oh. is tied to copper, right, right, right. then you're all about of the course. CIA deposing Absolutely. Pinochet, right? right? But those tend to be in the minority, right? And the business, generally speaking, doesn't want trade routes across the Atlantic, you know, with full of warships, <laughs> right? They want right. trade ships. Right. Know? But they don't want to lose access to the Middle East. Right. For yeah. sure. So, so business has been ambivalent at best about right. war historically and in right. gen- generally. Uh, no, Teddy Roosevelt and all those guys and Woodrow Wilson. Oh my goodness. Now they, they were true believers. They really were Christian you know, white man's burden guys who wanted to go yeah. out and uplift the savages, you know, and make them like us as much as they could. They wanted to go find those brown people and make them into white people as best they could. <laughs> and the only, the only argument they had among themselves was how, how far we could raise up those brown people, meaning, you know, how, how much was their racial, you know, structure going to stop them from rising? Yeah. That was the only thing they disagreed about. Um, now, Economic interests were always important for these guys, for sure. But to me, the 
you know, economic power of the United States was the necessary vehicle through which to pursue their greater objective, mm. which was Pax Americana, which was right. making the whole world into a Christian America. I mean, this is what they said over yeah. and over again, and I have no reason to believe that they were lying. I mean, they really... Woodrow Wilson was a minister's son. I mean, that's who he was. He right. was a deeply Christian guy, evangelical from the get-go. Teddy Roosevelt the same way. He was know? also... Was he president of Princeton? Woodrow Wilson yeah. was, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But he was, he was an evangelical Christian. And he, right? League of Nations, was that him? That was his project, which yeah. the U.S. Which did, and, did not enter war. it. But yeah, because the U.S. opposed it. I mean, the Senate opposed it, but... Um, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, you know, and I think this is true for Franklin with World War II. Um, it was about controlling Europe. It was about making sure the United States controlled Europe after that and the Pacific Rim and Latin America, but especially the industrial core of Europe. But he was the same way. I mean, he was trained in sort of the upper class, in an upper class school in, in New England, you know, where they trained their boys to go out and do this right to make the world safe for democracy right and make the world safe for america so deeply ingrained ideas in these guys who were yeah. who were running foreign policy for years and years and years and years and i think the neocons in bush in the bush administration with a little different twist they were jewish and interested in protecting israel and zionists but they yeah. also had this idea you know it wasn't about making money if they wanted to make money they would have been in corporations they would have been ceos right Dick Cheney took a huge pay cut to go from Halliburton to the vice president's office, right? These guys really want to make the world into America. That's what drives them, I think, primarily. Now, there are certainly business interests, particular business interests, that do have pushed for imperialism for, to serve their own economic interests. For sure, there has been self-interest. But by and large, if you look at American foreign policy, and in particular, sort of the imperialist pushes – it's come from true believers, right? It's actually, again, it's this Christian impulse. Right. Although, uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union, it was largely pushing against their, at least, imagined expansionism, right? I mean, the, the sur surround and... Oh, against the... Oh, containment? Containment, against, against yeah, the exactly. Oh, yeah, against the communist and Christian. Like, like Vietnam, but right? That's I mean, they were trying to Christianize Vietnam or make it America. They were... They thought they were fighting against Chinese expansionism, right? Well, right, but... But communism or Soviet, was, actually. But communism was the antithesis, so it had to be defeated. It had godless. to be defeated. To, right. yeah, to, well, right. not just godlessness. I mean, it's really about Americanizing the world. Mm. Um, so yeah, they wanted to make Vietnam America in the right ways. You know. Wow. This is. I mean, you've got to you've got to take these guys' words seriously. I mean, that's and in the progressive era. Oh, I disagree with you there. It's plain. I don't take anybody's words seriously, especially <laughs> politicians. Come um, on. And CEOs and people well, who have then, image well, then, consultants. Well, then why, again, would you run for Senate or Congress or for the president, you know, if, you, if, you, if it's about money? Well, it's, A, ego gratification, right? These are all yeah. pathological egomaniacs. True. Um, secondly, the money doesn't have to be directly for you. If you it, it's status and it's you know if you get into a position where you, all your friends are going to get rich because they've got access and your friends are CEOs when you're running for shit like that they're mm -hmm. all big boys. Um, you know I, I I have a much fun strangely I think I have a much more cynical. Uh, attitude about these things and it, it relates back to actually what we were talking about when the 
machine wasn't working here. That whole spirit, yeah. the you know the emergent uh, property thing. Um, what a quick recap for the audience who who didn't hear that. Uh, what we were talking about was how sort of cultures emerge from conglomerations of people, and those cultures might have agendas that are contrary or at least completely disconnected from the agendas of the human beings within that culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of feel like maybe that applies to foreign policy as well, that there are reasons for doing things that make no sense on a human level. I mean, I still don't understand what the hell happened in Iraq. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, I, I don't get it. Is it that Saddam was threatening to uh, not trade oil in dollars anymore? Is that what it was? You know, because <laughs> no, we I, don't have control so, of those wells. We're not even trying to have control of the oil. So a good friend of mine who's a professor at Wesleyan who's Jewish said to me, it's a Jewish conspiracy. <laughs> And I think he's essentially right. So the neocons, you have to understand, comes from Zionism. It comes from a bunch of American intellectuals who were left-wingers. Right. Right. Bill Crystal, Crystal, right. Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz, the Podoritzes, that right. whole crew. Right. right? And it, we're talking about a very small handful of guys. Right. All intellectuals, all Northeastern Jews, who were secular left-wingers in the 50s and 60s, then, for various reasons which are very interesting, I think mostly having to do with uh, multiculturalism and having to do with them living in, in ghettos that became Puerto Rican and black, um, they started to move toward identifying with Judaism again and finding Israel as their safe haven. Yeah. Once they became attached to Israel, everything else fell into place. So right. that meant that you that America had to be strong in the Middle East because America became Israel's primary benefactor after 1968. Mm-hmm. So without America, there was no Israel. Right. Without Israel, there was no Judaism. Without Judaism, there was no identity for Bill Crystal. Right. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so so it became so once Saddam comes into power and starts to amass, I think it was the fourth largest military. Um, by the 1990s in the world, um, he was clearly a threat to Israel. He was a genuine threat to Israel. Because he would just come through Jordan and there That was go. not paranoid. Right. That, that was real. He was a real threat. Now, we don't know to this day whether he was intent on marching on Israel. Right. Because he, he was, was secular, no, right? He was secular, but he was a cynical fucker. But he was, you know, but who knows? And he, he had, was our guy. He was off and on, yeah, definitely. Like during the whole Iraq-Iran yeah, war, we were funding Well, the U.S. Him, put right? him into power. Yeah. 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 And kept him in power and funded him during the Iraq-Iran right. war. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for sure. Um, but, you know, who knows? I mean, with the fourth largest military right next door to Israel, I mean, I understand, I'm an anti-Zionist, but I understand why the Zionists would be nervous about this guy. It's a legitimate concern, right? right? So that's why we went to war. These guys ended up taking power sort of by amazing coincidences, but, you know, with Bush, through Bush, and that was that, you know. they, they, they So that was it. It was they like, won we, the day we and got they, to neutralize that big-ass army. And then they concocted a whole rationale about right. WMDs and the rest of it, um, right. and, and Saddam's atrocities, in which the Democrats, by the way, completely bought, not didn't buy into, they participated in that whole right. charade. Right. And that was that. And next thing you know, we've got millions dead. Yeah. Thanks. But... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so in a sense, it really does come from, I mean, I hate to boil it down to that, but it does come from sort of this Zionist impulse among these these Jewish intellectuals. Well, or to be less inflammatory, you could say uh, Israeli foreign policy. 
mm. as executed by the United States, which wouldn't be the first yeah, time. Yeah, they don't. They, the, the tail doesn't wag the dog. We, we, we wag that tail. You we, think so? Oh, yeah. Sure, of course. We've got all the money. I mean, Israel doesn't exist without the United States. You know what? It I doesn't wonder exist about that. I wonder about that. You look at what's going on right now. Netanyahu is going to come and speak to Congress even though the president doesn't want him to? What the fuck is up with that? Uh, That's nuts. Well, yeah, but I mean, they, so the fact is that the, Israel does not exist without the United States. Sure, financially. So the dependency but I is one way there. Yeah. I don't, see, I don't see it as so one way. And, you know, I'm talking out my ass. Let's be honest here. I know nothing about this. But my sense is that the Israeli Secret Service mm-hmm. is so good and there's so many uh, Jews in America in positions of power mm-hmm. and influence and access sure. that their intelligence is such that well you you see it in Congress nobody wants to come out and vote against Israeli interests right mm-hmm. they're terrified of mm-hmm. the APAC or whatever it's called so I, I I agree with you that you know you got a huge country there are more Jews in New York than there are in Israel right and yet uh, for its size Israel is extremely influential and powerful, particularly in Washington, inside the Beltway. Right, but it wouldn't be without the United States. Well, there wouldn't be a Beltway without the United no, States. No, no, I mean, yeah. Israel wouldn't exist in much, or, or have any power without the United States. It'd Probably, be, yeah. Oh, because, it'd, because it would be that, smoking rubble, if, yeah, if not yeah. for the United States, of course. Yeah. Although, yeah, yeah, it's interesting, all the money that's going, American money that's going to Egypt. You've got to wonder what the hell's up with that. I just read today they bought a bunch of uh, fighter jets from France for the first time. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's, so the top two uh, recipients of foreign aid for the last 30 years have been Israel and Egypt, one and two. Yeah. Uh, simple. Suez Canal is between them. Right. <laughs> If you control the Suez Canal, you yeah. control the world because it's all the also, oil goes through there. Right. right? So you got to control that. It's also such a great scam, too. The Israeli money, I mean, the Egyptian foreign aid that we call foreign aid. Right. We lend you this money that you, you need to use to buy our military equipment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. so we sell you all the shit and then you owe us, you know, a billion yeah. dollars a year. And you can whatever. put people in prison and torture them and execute them and that's, uh, yeah. whatever. It's yeah. Necessary. yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's a phenomenal racket. All right, so here's the question of the day. Have you seen American Sniper? Yes, I have. What would you think of that? I saw it because Sean Hannity wanted me on, to be on his show to talk about it, and I, I turned him down for that because I didn't want to be yelled at <laughs> for 30 minutes. <laughs> really? By a, knuckle, by a knucklehead. I've done it before, and it's just it's not worth You've it. You've been yelled at by Sean Hannity? Oh, yeah. I've been oh. on twice, yeah. His radio show. It's just it's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It's I was ridiculous. on a Fox radio show. You get nothing. What do you get from it? I mean, there's nothing. I completely fucked it up. You know, I, I completely fucked it up because I was living. It was what's her name, Laura Ingram. Uh, I was on her show. Okay, yeah. yeah. She yelled at me too. Yeah. 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 So, it, it, so she was yelling at me about monogamy uh-huh. or something. And what <laughs> happened was that I I was living in Topanga where I had really shitty cell <laughs> reception. Uh-oh. So I I said we'll do it through my computer through Skype or right. whatever it was. Right. So. We hook up through Skype, and her producer's like, okay, you know, five seconds, you're on, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as she started talking to me, I start hearing these voices. Like, you know, someone talking in the background. And and so she's like, well, what do you think of the... And it's a live radio show, right? And I'm like, well, I, I think there's a problem with your studio. I'm hearing all these, these voices. And, well, there's no problem on our end, whatever. It completely wasted her time. It turns out I had a a website open on my browser that had one of those ads that just pops up and starts talking. And I had no idea. Was it porn, Chris? I don't know what it was. I wish. Like, ooh, that would have been funny. 
So I fucked that up completely, but it's probably for the better. So, so anyway, I, I watched, Sean Hannity wants to yell so I, at you. Yeah, so then I was like, oh, I guess I should see this. So I, why is he yelling at you? I would think you guys would have some common ground. A little bit, no. I know he's an idiot, but... Well, he's not I just mean, an idiot. He's like super pro-military and intervention. And oh, right. Christian so the, conservative uh, yeah, and all yeah, the rest yeah, of it. No, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. We have nothing in common. And he thinks he's for the mar- free markets, but he's not. Um, he's, he's such a... He's Of all he's the Fox a, News people, he's the one I would most like to just pimp slap. He's a bully... On li- well, on the air, but you know what? I've heard from many people who know him quite well. He's actually quite a nice guy when he's off camera. So he just plays an asshole. On Unlike TV. O'Reilly, it's who's, a, who's a dick. Universally, people say O'Reilly is who he is on camera, just a complete asshole. Right. But everyone says that Hannity's actually a nice guy off camera. But I'm on, not sure if that's better or worse. But on air, O'Re- yeah, Hannity is just a yelling bully. Yeah. Um, so I saw American Sniper just because anticipating, you know, being asked to be on cable news. <laughs> to talk about it right um god it was terrible and i was it's really horrifying and i couldn't mm. so first of all what is admirable about that guy even even from sean hannity's perspective like what i didn't see anything in there you know sort of clint eastwood you can sort of get why they like him Mm. because there's sort of a charisma there first Mm. of all i saw no charisma in this guy he kind of mumbles he has no personality Yeah. yeah He's just, he's sort of emotionally shut down. Even there's not even any anger. There's no righteous anger, Hannity style. Like, what is it? He sort of does this cold-blooded, almost cold-blooded shooting of a child in one of the first scenes. That's kind of the opening scene in a way, yeah. right? And then his mother kills his mother, shoots her through the chest or whatever, right? And it's kind of, and he's a little bit of, he's slightly remorseful, but he then moves on. And then yeah. he kills 160 more people. Just this, doing in my this job. Way. Remote, yep. you know, remotely. Um, but more, I just didn't see any way, reason to identify with this cat. You know, I just thought he was, a, I thought he was a serial killer. Yeah. I thought, I said on Facebook, it was like watching Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, that film. I couldn't, I I'd left the theater. Yeah, I, was, I couldn't that sit through that. That was a tough movie to watch. Oh my God. That that, really I don't know how movie. long, but I remember they're with a family and they take over I, and they, they start raping the daughter in front of and the mother. Did you see the beheading in that movie? No, a, I think there was something where he like broke someone's neck and I was just no, like, I cannot <laughs> do this. There's a beheading in a bathtub, yeah. Oh. It's, it's, but oh. I, but you know, like with serial killers, I think, you know, there's sort of this, there's this complete sort of disassociation going on. Yeah. And I, that's what I saw in this guy. Yeah. Um, which would be f- interesting as a study if that's where, if that was Eastwood's point of view. Right. right? If it were a study of that. Right. I'd be fascinated by that. Um, but they weren't interested in that. Um, it's just horrifying. I mean, yeah. you know, it's just horrifying. I so just, what was it? What's resonating with the American audience? Because it broke all these records. I, is it? Di- I mean, I know it's doing well. Well, the first sort of, couple of weekends, it like yeah, blew up. You but know. I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't really heard anyone say what they like about this or this guy. I mean, I heard Bradley Cooper on Fresh Air talk about it. Yeah. What a dumb shit, first of all. Is he really? Yeah, because mm-hmm. he, was, he talked about how much he just fell in love with Chris Kyle. And I, I was kept waiting for why. What right. is the, What is it about him? I just loved him and his Texas accent and his you know ability with to shoot guns. I was like, well, what else is there? I right. mean, now I could see from their point of view, I could completely see them saying, you know, I mean, we needed to do this, and he was brave under fire, which he wasn't. <laughs> you know, he wasn't even from their perspective. He wasn't even particularly courageous, right? When you're shooting someone from half a mile away, I mean, what is that? Yeah. Um, uh, it just it, it horrifying. Um, so there's there's like extreme competence, which Americans celebrate. Yeah, we right? dig, we dig that. We dig that. Yeah. 
but yeah, there was no. Uh, I, I watched Unforgiven the night after. I watched first. We watched American Sniper, then we watched Unforgiven because mm-hmm. I wanted to sort of compare the two. Mm. You know, and Unforgiven won the Oscar. I think it was Clint Eastwood's first right. directorial right. You know, thing. It's been a while since I saw it. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. There's essentially no plot. The plot of hmm. Unforgiven is this guy who used to be a, you know, a wild gunslinger who's now a farmer, and he had been married to this woman who set him straight and got him to stop drinking and be serious, and then she died from something, and now he's got the kids. And some guy comes and says, hey... You know, there's a bounty on these two cowboys who uh, cut up a, a prostitute's face. Right. And, like, I'll split it with you because I heard you, you're the badass, blah, blah, blah. And the guy, he needs the money, so he goes to do it. But the, the I think the thing that was revelatory about it that won him the Oscar is that when he shoots one of these guys, who we know actually didn't cut the woman's face and was actually kind of a nice guy, when Clint Eastwood shoots him, you, it's sad. There's nothing beautiful about it. And Clint is sad, and the guy dies slowly in agony. And it's just like, wow, that was not glamorous at all. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what was like, holy mm-hmm. shit, Clint Eastwood made a Western that's not mm-hmm. glamorizing killing. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, he does go into town and he kills everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and he turns into the badass Clint Eastwood. What a simple-minded fucking movie. And then I look at American Sniper, and it's basically the same Same thing. thing. Yes, right. It's like, okay, you're good at shooting people. Mm -hmm. Who gives a fuck? And guess what? He gets the bad guy at the end. Yeah. Same thing. Someone like him who who was suffering from PTSD and all that. No, 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 no. no. No, The sniper kills the Iraqi sniper. Oh, the the Mustafa, yeah. whatever his name yeah, is. Yeah, same same with Unforgiven. He does get the he does glamorize that because it's his awesome right, like, mile yeah. long shot yeah. or whatever that's like nearly impossible, yeah. and he pulls it off. Right, and oh boy, that's great. He shoots the the. The indigenous people defending their homeland from a fucking invasion. That's, like, that's exactly what? what I was thinking. That a was chi- never mentioned. Imagine this: a child, a ten year old boy, carrying a grenade down the street to fe- to fight against the invaders of his home country. Right. We are expected to cheer for which person in this? Right. Like, yeah. I, <laughs> it's so, like, someone should make a movie flipping the roles. Yeah. Right? The American well, they did. It was called. Her- it was called Red Dawn. Oh, I never saw no, that. No, it was this, like, totally it, jackass like, Reagan, Reagan right. era movie in which the Soviets invade, I think it's the Soviets invade the United right. States. Right. And all these, like, high school kids form a militia and, and fend them, and fend them <laughs> off. Right? Yeah. Well, we, of course, immediately identified with the kids of in that course. movie who fended of off, who fought against the invaders, right? Right. I just, it's, yeah. I mean, that was that's what I was thinking with that scene, that opening scene, or one of the opening scenes. Yeah. This kid is like fighting against the invaders of his home, of his country. Right. And we're supposed to see him and as we the identify, enemy. Or, well, not quite, but we, we identify with the guy who shoots him. Yeah. Well, we, we see that as a justified killing. Yeah, right. Because exactly. he's protecting yes. America. And then his mother. Yeah. Then his mother yeah. gets shot in the face or head or, or yeah, chest. Or yeah, that, that was pretty chilling, I have to Amazing. say. And that the was... other thing about Clint Eastwood, and I, I just, <laughs> one of the things that bothers me the most about him, I mean, of course his politics are terrible, but don't you find his movies to be just boring? I just don't, I don't yeah. get it. I don't, I don't even, I get why Rambo was popular. I get why Red Dawn was popular. Right. 
I like billion do- million dollar baby. I think kind that was of, the only one I liked. Kind of, I had problems with that too. But, but mainly because he's a secondary character in that. I just find them to be so plodding and boring. And the li- he just has his way of sucking the life out of those movies. And yeah, I don't get. I just don't understand. And why. as an actor, there's no range there. He's no. he's and I mean, he, in a way, he exemplifies the American ideal in his lack of emotional range. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like the, right. the fucking cowboy. He shows a little anger, which is fine right. for us. Anger's yeah. all right. But, yeah, but that's it. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. So Very do, shut down do you have a favorite war film? Oh. Let's say, forget politics. Is there a war film that you really enjoyed watching? I mean, Bridge Over the River Kwai is just oh, phenomenal. Because of the singing? <laughs> <laughs> They're singing in it. I can't remember. Do you remember? Do 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 do. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that that's, what? that's a fantastic movie. Yeah, um, I've been to that uh, Kenshinaburi, oh, which really? is where the bridge over the river okay. Kwai yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that I'll tell you what. That was a surreal thing. I, I went to this village, um, and you know, on the tour in Lonely Planet, it said that's where the bridge is. You mm-hmm. can go tour the bridge or whatever. And um, where is it? Kenshinaburi, Thailand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, but it was the strangest thing. This was like nineteen, uh, I don't know, eighty eight or something like that. And I get to this village, and it's cool. And there are a couple places to stay. And you know, walk. I love Thailand. I've been there a lot. And but every cafe, every restaurant was playing music from the late sixties. Oh, like huh. Vietnam era uh-huh. American music. Every and obscure shit, like you know, it's like the old cars in Cuba. It's like they had not uh-huh. changed their music huh. since then. It was a little time capsule. Very strange. Well, they have good taste, though. Yeah, it was good. It was like classic shit that I had. You know, wow, you know, Derek and the Dominoes B sides. Huh. You know, really good stuff. I watched the uh, war movies, the Brad Pitt, the new Brad Pitt World War Two movie, oh, Fury. Fury. Yeah. Um, so the first, this is political political critique. So uh-huh. I don't know, but I mean, well, it's both. First, like, I don't know, four fifths of it is really a fantastic anti war movie. Um, and it's especially bold in that it's about World War II. It presents that war as just the most atrocious, grimmest thing. Yeah. And even, and I love the way they portrayed the Americans as basically these savage killers. You know, and this is when they're fighting the Nazis. This is the Battle of the Bulge, the end of the yeah. war. This is when they're fighting the Germans and the Trent. Even then, they're presenting the Americans as these sort of just disgusting rapist, yeah. um, marauders, you know. And I'm like, wow, I cannot believe I'm watching this. Then, of course, the last scene is this fabulous. The Alamo. You know, like, yeah, yes. Yeah, this last stand against, you know, they have one tank against this whole, like, platoon of whatever it is, SS yeah. soldiers. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that was disappointing. But it started off, it started off in an interesting way. You know, we can't say anything about America in, the, in World War II. I mean, we can't say we can't criticize it. We can't. Yeah. It, that was new. It was the first time I'd ever see an, seen an American movie present American soldiers in World War II in anything other than a glamorous light. Well, wait a minute. Born on the Fourth of July. That's Vietnam. Yeah. Oh, World War Two. You're right. Yeah. Okay. World, World War Two. Less than a glamorous light. Saving Private Ryan. Maybe no. Mm. I don't remember them being really critical of American soldiers. In that. Yeah, I don't remember. This, you got. I mean, Fury is quite amazing. There's they're, they're rapists. Where was the rape scene? I don't remember that. Oh, in Fury? Yeah. Oh, you saw. Uh, well, there was. I mean, the guy was like they were they they were trying to rape that girl in the and then Brad Pitt stops them. Oh, oh, where the they girl. where they have lunch with yeah. her mother and her. Yeah. And, well, but the one guy goes off into the room with her. That so that was completely voluntary. 
That was well, love. I mean, it was portrayal. That was young Yeah, love. I know. I mean, you're sure. I mean, that was bullshit. And, it was and, then, and then she died like 20 minutes later and when a bomb but blew to up say that building. But to say that American GIs in, in, you know, in Germany in 1944 were rapists, man. But you're saying that, that was, was rape. That, that, I didn't see rape. No, no, no. I mean, when, you mean when the nasty guy showed yeah. up? Yeah. Oh, they wanted like to. Two, yeah, they yeah. wanted to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But Brad Pitt stopped them. Right. As he would. Of course, because it's Hollywood. Yeah. I'm talking about the limitations of this. I'm, but it's still, they were, they were, he pushed, I felt, felt like the movie pushed against the, the limits of Hollywood there yeah. a little bit. Well, that's interesting. So, you know, here, we, here we're talking about depictions of American soldiers, and you would think that it would be a proximity issue. That, like, okay, we could talk about they could be more evil in World War II because that's further away. But we see you know, they're depicted as pretty evil in Vietnam. Yes. So well, because World War II is the good war. Yeah. That's, that's and also because they were exposed by the media in Vietnam, right? Lieutenant Cali yes. and the, what was that? My Lai Massacre. Yeah, that was part of it. Yeah, there was some really nasty shit that went down there. Yeah, the first and only war that's been exposed like by the media, right? Right, because since because then they learned their lesson. No right. pictures, no that's right. serious journalists. So now Isn't the, it amazing that Brian Williams is in trouble for lying about the fucking yeah, of Iraq all the, of all the lies about Iraq, that's the <laughs> that one so someone lost their job over. Unbelievable. So the embedded, you know, the embedded uh, media, which sucks, I mean, but that's the best, that's what we get. We get mm. these people run, like Brian Williams rolling right. in the tanks and the helicopters, right? You know who won that? We would have not even that if not for one guy. Larry Flint. Really? Yeah, he, he uh, sued in court against the Bush administration who wanted to keep the media out entirely. And he, the court, I think the, the judge in the case actually came up with this compromise where he allowed for the embedded media reporters. Really? Yeah. Larry Flint. It was Larry Flint. That's Larry Flint's a great hero of free speech. Yeah, great. You know, my literary I had agent. lunch with him. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. He wanted me to write the foreword to his book. Um couple of years ago he wrote a book about like the sex lot it was interesting about sort of oh, sex presidents. scandals or something about the sex lives or sex scandals of presidents i remember yeah yeah my literary agent reps him oh okay. he reps him me and ron paul oh wow and and uh another guy you would know morris berman oh sure yeah, yeah it's a really interesting group i mean not I only the four of us there are others but i know morris yeah you know him personally? From Columbia, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. I've, I'm trying to get him on the podcast. He's a good he's, guy. Yeah, he lives in Mexico. Oh, yeah? In Guadalajara. Okay, yeah. And he was coming up to Portland for something, so we were going to get together, and uh, but that trip is postponed. And, yeah. Um, he's an interesting cat. I, I loved Wandering God. His, I don't know if you I read don't that. know his work, yeah. Uh, um, good writer. But Larry Flint, yeah, he, um, he's a fantastic champion of free speech. And I had lunch with him, so he invited me to, to. What was that like? Was that at his headquarters? Absolutely bizarre, as you might imagine. Was it in no? Hollywood it was that he sort of holds court at um, fancy hotel in Beverly Hills. Uh, I can't remember which one. It's one of the big hotels in Beverly Hills. He's, he sort of holds court in the restaurant there every day. He's there every day, five days a week. Really? In his wheel, his gold-plated wheelchair, and as a two attendants who have to lift him up like every ten minutes to keep the digestive tract going. Oh, man. And. Um, and he can barely speak. He, you can, it's hard to understand him. And he talks about, like, pussy, like, much of the time. It's really... <laughs> <laughs> that'll turn... That'll he talks about... Well, he talks about taste What's it. fascinating, he's sort of, he talks about politics. He's obsessed with politics. Yeah. Like, high-level politics. Right. You know? And by the way, he's like a diehard Democrat. 
Right. He's like he's a complete partisan Democrat. Huh. So it's about how terrible the Republicans are and pussy. So That's why would he, he want about. you to write his thing? I well, because the guy who ghost wrote it with him is like I went to graduate school with oh, him. And they okay. sort of fa- found out about my book and they thought it was sort of um, consistent with what it's. it's so it's, what it's happened? Not, it's, you, it's, you weren't into it. It's a dumb book. <laughs> but it, it could be a dumb book with a great introduction. It's a really dumb book. No, there's mm-hmm. no argument. It's just sort of like. It's just like a catalog of these sort of scandals. You know, right. There's no, there's no point to it. Right. Were they offering you money or just, no? Oh, well, no. that's kind of. Plus, I didn't think it was going to do well. I just, nah. It just, but it wasn't me. It wasn't my argument. Right. Um. So I, I just turned them down. But it was a fascinating thing to have lunch with Larry Flint. Yeah. What'd you order? God, I don't remember. I was just so like in <laughs> awe of the whole thing. You know, pussy and Republicans. That's all he wants to talk about. <laughs> And, and like when you couldn't understand him, would someone translate or did you just pretend just, you knew what I he was saying? I just would nod. Yeah, yeah. A lot of nodding. <laughs> yes. Yes. Larry. Uh, yeah. I've never met him. That, but, I, you know, he, you know, he, um, he made John Stewart possible. He made the whole, I mean, all of sort of our, our new, the new culture of being able to, uh, you know, harshly criticize political figures possible and public figures because he sued. Let's see, Jerry Falwell. He he ran a an ad, or a cartoon of Jerry Falwell like doing something really bad, like, like fucking you know, a chicken in an outhouse or something like that. Right. I forget exactly, but so Falwell sued him for defamation or slander or something, and and Flint won the case, and it ended up changing the laws having to do with well, basically basically the media sort of took this as a as an invitation, you know. That right. the courts would protect speech against public figures, right? And so, what John Stewart and the rest of us do is now possible, because, right. largely because of that. If it's, cl- I think the, I mean, I haven't read the the law, but I, my understanding is, if it's clear that you're making a joke, it's protected speech. You can't say. Mm. Uh, I think it's broader than that. Well, you can't say so and so committed a crime. Mm. You know, you can't say no. he killed he killed someone or he's a rapist. You no, know, although that happens all the time. Yeah, and people are called rapists even before they've been Poor Bill Cosby. (laughs) Well, so I have nothing good to say about Bill Cosby, as you might imagine. I'm joking, ladies and gentlemen. But, I mean, politically, he's horrendous. I mean, he's like the opposite of what I believe in politically. But but I, this this sort of rape culture stuff, you know, I think that's part of it. I mean, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. The, the rape culture stuff is a real problem. Yeah. I had a guest on, uh, well, the, the podcast went up a week or so ago, who's an expert in assessing um, sex abuse cases involving children. Mm-hmm. So his thing is that he tries to talk people down from the frenzy that mm-hmm. tends to develop around those cases where people just stop thinking rationally mm-hmm. and stop giving people the dem- benefit of the doubt and mm-hmm. the whole McMartin, McMartin craziness. Yep. You know, he was involved. Or I don't know if he was involved in that, but he studied it. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And, you know, I don't know if you and I were talking about this uh, recent article in the New York Times recently about how one tweet ruined this person's yes. life. Do you yes. see that? Yes, great article, yeah. Yeah, the woman on her way to South yes. Africa and made some joke. And even if you read it in context of her other tweets, right. it's clear she wasn't it was being actually, racist. It was actually anti-racist. Right. Yeah, yeah. She tweeted, for people who aren't familiar with this, she tweeted um, – it was a series of tweets where she was sort of pretending to be the obnoxious American abroad 
and she complained about something in Heathrow and you know whatever in London the cars are all going down the wrong side of the road and she was it was in character of this dumbass American abroad and she tweeted something about uh, okay you know now I'm getting on my flight to South Africa hope I don't get AIDS oh no of course I won't I'm white right and then she gets on the plane. And she's got like 400 followers on Twitter or right. something. And somebody tweet, you know, forwarded it or, or retweeted it. And it came to the attention of some like BuzzFeed asshole who made a big deal of it. And by the time she landed in South Africa, she had been fired from her job. And was an international pariah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the whole point was to make fun of dumbass white people yeah. who think only black people could get AIDS. Right. It, it, the and the woman for yeah. in that article it, it's like she couldn't get a job for yeah. a couple years yeah. and she was depressed and like yeah. you know holed up in her mother's basement like holy shit. Being unemployed was the least of it yeah. for her. I mean imagine Oh she couldn't date. Yeah, she yeah. was talking about that That's like right. she couldn't date because people would google her well, and course. like oh fuck, I'm not I don't want to sure. have dinner with you. Well just the just being shamed by millions of people. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. And the isolation and, but it's all of it. abstraction. Oh, you yeah, know, it's exactly, all exactly. this weird. Yeah, like, she doesn't control policy. She doesn't like, you didn't affect Yeah, but any. like you say, by millions of people, but they're, none of them are real people. Oh, that you right. don't see them. They're right. not like looking you in the right. eye and saying you right. shouldn't have done that. It's just it, text. It's, it's just text. Yeah, yeah, it's all just little pixels. It's yeah, yeah. very weird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the shaming. I mean, it's, I, we really live in the crucible right now. Yeah. And so this has really been, I mean, always we have. And what's happening? Do you think, but, will this burn itself out? Because it kind yeah. of feels like it's already, there's a backlash. It's already caving now. in. Okay, it's already right. caving in. I, I feel the same way. I, I feel there's a backlash happening. Yeah. So um, Bill Cosby, but come on, Bill Cosby, like, creep. I mean, they're all saying the same thing and independently. And, you know, what we need is whoever was supplying him with whatever drug he was putting in the drinks to come forward and you know that would that would really seal the deal you think you think he could be innocent like sure. 30 women of now of course he could be yeah what's the motivation for these women uh money no settling out well, of court no they're not they're not suing him he are, some, most of these some women, women already have made money on this. some women but well. <laughs> most of the women who are coming forward are not suing him they're but, just coming forward and but, saying but yeah it happened a, to me too but there's a possible motive right there so i i just don't know Right and yeah. yeah, I just don't know. I have no idea one way or the other, and that's where we should leave it until there's evidence, until he's proven guilty. You know, that's where you got to leave it because there there is a possible motivation in this case. There is not for the women who aren't getting any money. All they're getting is well. Here's another thing they can get. What? And I, it's very dangerous to go down this road, but it's of course they get celebrated for being brave, for being victims. Yeah, it's true. Maybe of course they get something from it. Um. None of this says that they weren't raped. Yeah. None of what I'm saying says they weren't raped. I don't know, but there is possible motivation. This is why we should always be skeptical until yeah. someone's proven guilty, God damn it. I mean, so the presumption of innocence is a very, very important legal standard, but it should also be a very important part of our culture, right? There's, right. A, there's a cultural presumption of innocence, which is lost. Yeah. Um, and that is a really, that's a very dangerous thing. Because when you lose that culturally, next thing you know, people actually are going to prison or being executed Yeah, um, when, they're, when they're not guilty. Um, oh, so, like anybody hanging out at a wedding in Yemen these days. Oh, well, yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. Right. They're presumed know, guilty. Any, any male, you know, over 12 years old and under 80 yeah, in Yemen is considered an Al-Qaeda yeah, fighter. Sure. You know, like, blow right. them up. Worry about it later. Yeah. Um, it's a problem. And so we're, 
you know, with the rape culture thing on campuses, which I've been at the sort of center of in some ways. I mean, my Occidental has been at the center of it for yeah, years. Yeah, we right? talked about that last time. One of your colleagues was like yeah. right at ground zero in that whole thing. It's there. It's all caving in. They're now fighting among each other. Oh, the really? student, one of the <laughs> amazing, most amazing things is the, the group that was founded by these faculty. It was like two or three faculty. Um, uh, the students in it have now expelled the faculty <laughs> <laughs> for what being pol- in, uh, you impure? have to read there's an article in um, about it recently in the LA magazine yeah. um, Los Angeles magazine um, the magazine says it's because the students believed that she was essentially self-aggrandizing and interested and 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 browbeat them for not being militant enough and sent out these sort of texts attacking the students for not being militant enough and mm-hmm. so the students banned her from this group um yeah and so now you're finding a lot of these a lot of the accusations that sort of founded the movement have been shown to be at least dubious right. and in some cases clearly to be falsified you know the columbia case right now has major questions around it now because that remind me of this one uh this is the girl who's carried the mattress around oh yeah for a right, year. right yeah so the new article came out that um showed Facebook messages that she sent to the guy right. after the alleged incident, which are very, very friendly and some, you could say, flirtatious. And also there's a Facebook message in which she um, offers to bring women to a party he's giving after the alleged incident. So, again, I don't know. This, she still could have been raped by the guy. But <laughs> clearly, you know, there's grounds for being at least skeptical, which you're not yeah. allowed to be. Right. You can't be skeptical. You can't presume innocence. Right. And not be called a rape apologist. It's it's really problematic. And you're not exaggerating. That has been articulated clearly. That I don't remember who, but uh, a woman author, prominent, who said in these cases we should always believe the accuser. Oh, many. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Like, wait a minute. That is the opposite, as right. you said. That's it's, that's the opposite of our entire legal yeah, system. Yeah, it's as you, it's been explicitly stated. Yeah, it's yeah. not. Yeah, that that's what I must, want to say. You're not exaggerating. We must believe. The so-called, vi- or they're called uh, survivors, right? Yeah. Which, <laughs> that is a presumption of guilt. Right. That is a presumption, because they're, they're, it's not just that they're survivors or victims, they are alleging a crime. Right. A major crime. The second worst crime you can commit in our culture. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is, this is a really serious thing. This is a very, very serious allegation against someone. And you're saying that we should always assume that it's true. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not only the seriousness of it, it's the difficulty and the messiness of demonstrating it and... So this is the the conundrum, right? I mean, so in the vast, so certainly in almost all acquaintance rape cases, there is no evidence. There is simply no evidence at all. There's no physical evidence, there's no witnesses in the vast majority of these cases. So what do we do about that? Yeah. And that's a real problem. A real I'm not conundrum. saying it's not a problem, yeah. it's a real problem. So one answer has been to presume guilt <laughs> um, and to have these kangaroo courts run by English professors on campuses in which they all, since there is no evidence, what do they do? They ask questions about people's sexual histories. That's what they right. do. That's all, that's all fucking, got. That is a witch hunt by definition. Completely. Yeah. So that's all I've had. I've talked to a guy, a professor who was on one of those boards and he said, I said, so how did you do this? Oh, we just asked them questions about their sexual histories. And from that, we determined that the guy was guilty. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and the woman too, sometimes they both get grilled about right. their sexual histories. Um, <clears throat> and the other is, um, 
you know, uh, empower women to not just say no, but to fight back, right? Instead of saying, you're always going to be the victim and you're powerless in this situation. By the way, a lot of these cases are women being psychologically coerced into having sex, right. in which there's not even an allegation of physical force being used right. or even the threat of force being used. Many of these cases that have been used to buttress this claim of rape culture, okay, if you look at them, many of them are she said no and then they fell asleep and then two hours later they woke up and he had sex with her and she didn't do it. She just lay there. Right. Well, that's the Wikipedia guy, the the Swedish case. Oh, I don't know. Oh, um, uh, what's his name with the white hair? No, you mean... Um, or not Wikipedia, WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks, yeah, yeah. yeah. Assange. Yeah, Julian Assange. That was his case. He was okay. with this woman. He was sleeping with her. Right. He had had sex with her. Right. They fell asleep and then they were having sex again and he didn't wear a condom. Right. And then later she decided that was rape. Yeah. Many, in many of these cases, and these, you know, it's where the woman, you know, just didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, didn't give. Or had a few drinks. Didn't give uh, consent. It's true. Right. But I don't know about you, but I've had sex a lot when there was no cons- affirmative consent given. Right. Yeah. So that says that women are helpless victims. Right. Okay. Which is the, to me, the, almost the definition of anti-feminism. Right. Right. Well, then, then there's a, another level of complication with this where I told you I had this guy on a couple of weeks ago with the sexual abuse against children and stuff, right? Someone left um, uh, a comment on, on the website. If anyone wants to read it, it's at chrisryanphd.com. Go to the podcast, Tangentially Speaking. You'll see it under Steve Herman uh, is the guy's name. Someone wrote in and left a comment saying, um, essentially... Uh, I think it was a woman. She said, um, you know, I had, uh, I was sexually abused by my father starting at a very young age. And uh, by the time I understood that it was wrong, hmm. I'd already, it had already been happening for years and I liked it. Mm-hmm. I liked the pleasure. It's very I common. liked the gifts That's he gave very me. Common, yeah. I liked the affection. And by the time I realized it was a problem, and and then suddenly I was full of shame, even more shame, because I was complicit in it. Exactly. Right? And so I think there are, I think this happens, especially around sexuality, just because of the amount of physical pleasure involved in things. But it it gets really complicated because sometimes, for example, I, I was speaking with a sex researcher I know, and she was explaining to me that a lot of women who are raped have orgasms. Wow. So imagine the confusion there. You're, you're, something's happening to you that you do not want to be happening. And this is forcible rapes. This is, you know, some guy breaks into the house and whatever. I've never heard that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is mm-hmm. apparently well known among okay. therapists who, who deal with this stuff. Um, the body has an orgasm as a nervous reaction, mm-hmm. as a, a nervous response, right? But imagine the, the psychological and emotional devastation of that. Sure. Because now it's like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. right? What does that mean? Did, did I want this on some level? Am I enjoying that on some level? You know, right. And so I think it's re- the only reason I'm saying this, and I'm sure this is making a lot of people very uncomfortable, but I'm saying it because I think it's important that women understand and men understand that the physiological response to these things isn't necessarily in alignment with intention or 
you know, your, your decisions. And so the fact that you have – the fact that you get a hard-on when, uh, you know, somebody touches your dick in a certain way doesn't mean you want to have sex with that person. Mm-hmm. Your body's responding in a way that has nothing to do with your decisions or your, uh, your uh, intention. Yes, it's very tricky. Um, <laughs> so about about, Anywho, uh, about let's get back to Clint well, Eastwood. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Movie reviews. Let's do that instead. Uh, no, about about um, sexual abuse of children. Uh, what's oh, ca- what's oh, called we're going sexual... even deeper into well, no, this? Well, no, huh? that's where you started. Uh-huh. So I mean, so I know that study after study have shown that you know what I think most victims have said has troubled them the most is that they enjoyed it. Okay. Right. That's what I was getting to is, is what she said was what caused her the most pain was the culture telling her it that's was wrong. It. Not that's that it. it. That, so right. That's what that's I've where always I was said. Going. That's I what I've lost. always said yeah. to people when asked about this, right? The pain, I believe, mostly comes from the culture. Right. I agree with her. You know, I think that, that don't, that's the only way you can explain that. Because again, if you don't know it's wrong, then there's nothing wrong. Right. I mean, I know this is hard for people to hear, but that's a fact. And now it's also a fact that in most of the world, in most of human history, pederasty has been just fine and dandy, you know, and people didn't report pain or suffering or damage from it. Right. It's right. a it's a fairly new thing. Right. And it, by the way, it's pretty much only in our cultures right. in the West. Right. Right. Um, we placed a taboo on it a few hundred years ago, and that's and only here pretty much. And that's it, you know, in Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years and around the world still to this day, it's basically okay. Right. And you don't have people walking around feeling damaged by it in those cultures, right? Where where that taboo doesn't exist. That tells me that only one thing's causing people, and the pain is real. I'm not saying it's not real. I think people have real pain. I'm not, it's absolutely real, but where is the source of that pain? Right. It can only be from one place. The, what you would call the there's spirit. no physical torture and you know yeah yeah of yeah, course yeah, yeah right. what you would call the spirit right it, it's got to be it's the, the, culture the culture saying you're damaged it. oh my right. god that happened to right. you you must be damaged yeah it's a strange it's a very it must strange be painful. well i mean uh, now okay, when, are you circumcised yes okay so am i does that bother you? Do you feel victimized or it mutilated? <laughs> and some, well, no, I, I hear you. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I've read this stuff, and, right. and uh, Andrew Sullivan. I don't know if you know who yeah, he is, sure. right? So uh, he went on a real rampage about that on his dearly departed blog, mm-hmm. and had a friend of mine on uh, Jesse Baring, and Jesse Baring was arguing that it's actually not that big a deal, and oh, it's yeah? hmm. and they and but Andrew Sullivan lost his shit, and he was really like you know. Hmm. Uh, you know, like demonizing Jesse, and all, Jesse was just like, "Hey, I'm a sexual researcher, and this is you know." And Andrew normally is pretty level-headed, I, I would say, very passionate, but pretty mm-hmm. fair intellectually, mm-hmm. and he he really went overboard on that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of passion around that, but I have to say, I, you know, and I'm I'm looking for something to be pissed off about, but I just don't feel it. I mean, people are saying, "Oh, like, oh, you lose all these nerve endings." Look, well, we don't know what we lost. Well, even if they're right, I know that for me, and I would wager for you and for most circumcised guys, um, 
not having enough penile sensation has not been the problem. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like when you're 15, if you can last a minute, you're doing a hell of a job. Like more? I don't more. But don't we? Come on! But we still want to be opposed to it, don't we? <laughs> I don't know because that's I, I the that was wasn't that the intention of circumcision was to reduce pleasure it, in America it was uh, yeah an anti masturbation yeah. Uh, yeah 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 so so I'm <laughs> but I'm opposed to it like intellectually but I don't what I'm getting at is what you're talking about how culture defines who's the victim and who isn't and mm-hmm. what's damage and, and right. abuse or whatever right so in a way I kind of feel like the culture is telling me mm-hmm. I'm abused. Well, a part of the culture is. Part of it. And I just don't feel it. You know, I understand, and I wouldn't circumcise my son unless he had one of those problems where, you know, it was too tight or whatever, medically necessary. Um, but but something could have been taken from us, and we Well, it's something we don't I don't miss. Well, you don't know. You never... <laughs> Well, the only I'm assuming you were circumcised pretty early, right? Not, but it's not like not when you were sex 13. doesn't feel infinitely good. You know, so I, I don't... If it it's, felt any better, all that means is I'd come but, sooner. But maybe, well, no, oh, okay. Which isn't what I really want to be doing, right? No, so, no, no, no. <laughs> hey, if it could, if it could feel I don't know, even ladies better, ladies and gentlemen, Thad is blushing. If it could, <laughs> never, never. If it could feel even better, I'm all for it. But see, I don't think it would feel even better. How I do don't you know. know. Well, you be, don't know. Well, because you know, it feels good to a certain point, and then you come. Mm-hmm. So, it can't get better than that. It can just happen faster. It's like it's like you eat a certain amount of food and then you're full, right? You can't be fuller than that. You, you know, you can't. All that can happen is you could eat faster and then you're full. But in the end, you're full. You're satisfied. <laughs> you're sexually satisfied. Why would it necessarily uh, produce shorter sex? Uh, because the amount of sensation to your brain would saturate your... But then we develop stamina. That's what happened, you know, after our first time we had sex. We had, and it was, well, what when they, it was 20 they, seconds long, the first time we had sex, right? And then it, we got long. It got... The duration for most of <laughs> we us, got I think. Longer. We got longer. It's, <laughs> Don't you it's, wish. It got longer. It's like Pinocchio, right? Yeah, it got, yeah. It got longer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm uh, talking out my ass again, but it, it seems we to wanna me... We want to be... But most importantly, don't right. we, Chris? We well, want to be opposed to circumcision, don't we? Theoretically, but I don't think it's that big a deal, honestly. Well... I mean, there, I there are a lot of things I'm much more. I'm more pissed about. off about American Sniper, yeah, for sure. But than than American Snipper, hey! exactly. <laughs> Kaching. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure I'm opposed to it. <laughs> yeah. Although I got my son circumcised. Oh, here we go. I mean, yeah, it was tough. That was a hard one. Why? Well, uh, my mother convinced me not, and she's a pro-sex feminist, so it's not no. like, but. Um, uh, she said, "You know, he'll he'll look like you," and that that was kind of the winning argument for me. He would want to look like me. He would, or he would feel strange, alienated somehow if he did if he looked different than I did, which I, that made sense to me. Does he see your your? Oh yeah. Oh, you guys pr- prance around naked here do you? all the time. Oh, th- thanks for getting dressed for me. <laughs> Not all the time, but sometimes. My father was a nudist. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Oh, yeah. He so was... you grew up with him? I did. I did. How do you feel about that? Um, 
I fine. I mean, he also had a lot of loud sex around me and and told me about his sex life a lot. Um, was he separated from your mom? Yeah, yes. Uh-huh. But I was raised primarily by him. Ah, uh-huh. single dad who fucked around a lot. And he my, brought women home. Yep, and loudly had a lot of girlfriends and was. I heard him have sex hundreds of times. So how your t- teenage years? Oh yeah. Oh, beginning when I was six. Seven, oh my god! All the way through. And how did that affect you? Right. Good question. I don't think it did. Um, he did a lot of other terrible things as a father, but that was not one of them. I don't think that was bad. Okay, Thad. Now you, you know. We but can, I'm open to you know. We can edit this out, or you can just tell me to fuck off. No, but I'm go ma- for it. I mean, I'm imagining myself at yeah. 14, 15 when I was like, mm-hmm. sex was pretty much all I could think about. Mm-hmm. My dad brings home a hot woman. He's banging her. Part of me is like. Oh my God! That hot woman's having sex in the next room, mm-hmm. and part of me is, oh, oh, that's my dad. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to think about that. Like it's I, I'm desperately uh, obsessed of think, thinking about her half of it, mm-hmm. and repulsed by his half mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Did you experience that or anything like that or something? Um, else? I found it to be a little titillating, but mostly <sighs> you didn't like drill a hole through the wall and. No, I didn't need. To, I almost didn't need to. I mean, I didn't see it. Oh, yeah, the door opened. But I heard it a lot. Yeah. I didn't see much, if anything. Um, no, I never saw him have sex, but I heard a lot. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was yeah, it was somewhat titillating, but mostly it was annoying. <laughs> Did he, he never like tried to set you up with any of the women? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, he, he was not the most attentive father in any way, and certainly not in that way. But. Um, um, I don't think it. I think. I think again. The culture assumes I'm damaged by that, and I don't see any reason to believe that. Right. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, Maybe I am, but I don't think so. Um, no, I was damaged by a lot of other stuff he did or didn't do. But um, yeah, no. But he was a nudist also. He was. He would walk around naked all the time. Was he a hippie? Kind of. He was like a. Um, he was a lapsed Mormon. Wow. So he was raised a more. His father was a Mormon minister. Wow. In the Midwest, uh, Missouri Mormons, who were the ones who were opposed to polygamy, but otherwise were exactly the same. Super repressed, right? Mormon. I mean, incredibly repressed. How people. old was he when he broke free? College. <clears throat> yeah, he went to the University of Michigan and like hung out with atheists. And then he became a radical atheist, socialist, right. hedonist, smoked a lot of pot, drank. This he, is mid-60s? Yeah. Uh, for him, he... He went to college in the 50s, oh. but then he moved to Berkeley in the six, or late 50s and then, of course, just exploded and went whole hog on all of that stuff. But wow. he retained a lot of the repression. He was, kind of, he was always sort of conflicted between his repressed side and this sort of wildly hedonistic side, but smoked a lot of weed, grew his own weed, uh, had tons of sex loudly, unashamedly, and was a nudist and drank. Um, but um, so, yeah, I was around that. So uh, in Berkeley, uh huh, Berkeley. In the, when I was growing up in this was the sixties and seventies. So yeah. yeah, of course, you know, it's Berkeley in the sixties and seventies. So yeah, this is pretty. Well, actually, I was going to say even there. I mean, that was pretty unusual. I, yeah. I, none of my friends had that experience, and they all thought it was crazy and wild too. Even though they were Berkeley kids too. Did they ever come over and listen with you? Yes. So my best friend <laughs> <Yeah>, listening parties. <laughs> my well, we didn't need to. It wasn't a party. It was like I my best friend. We would you know spend the night at each other's house all the time. Yeah. So when he was over at my house, we would sit and lie there, and it got to the point where we would like start 
imitating them, <laughs> jesting like, through the walls at so them. So they'd hear you? Yeah, so that they would hear us, right, and make fun of them. And, uh-huh. and then they would start laughing in the middle of their sex, and then it was quite something. Wow. Yeah. That's something. It's like you were almost in an hour roll orgy with your father. It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of it that way. I, you I, are right. I had to pronounce it oral, <laughs> yeah. not oral. You, oral. Thank you for the <laughs> careful attention to the enunciation. Um, wow, that's that's interesting. But yeah, that the whole thing like family, parents, sex. You know, again, it as you say, it's one of those things that our culture defines as creepy. And so but the it fact isn't. that it was my father made it easier than your right? mother so and again but this is the culture talking right i think through me right i mean i think that if it, might, it was my mother it would have been a whole different story right i was just listening to a comedian on the mark Marin podcast um cameron no who was it uh a comedian he just interviewed on the mark uh, the Marin interviewed on his podcast talking about his her mother being wildly promiscuous right in front of her mm. and talking very it was exactly almost exactly the same as my father but it was her mother right and she jokes about it on stage, so clearly she's not as damaged as she's supposed to be. Or that's how or she works it Or maybe that's how out. she copes with it. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. anyway, so but clearly your culture says, you know, it'd be much worse right. if my mother had been doing that. Much worse. And the funny thing is, you know, I, <clears throat> obviously I've read a lot about hunter-gatherer sexuality, yeah. and there's no privacy, right? Right. So in, in many cases, you know, you'd go off into the woods and, you know, mm-hmm. in the jungle or whatever if you want to be alone. But at night, you know, there's no, you're sleeping in either little huts or mm-hmm. one big long house, and everyone right. hears everybody. Yeah. yeah. And the kids joke and like act it out, and you know, it's the whole, and people pretend they're sleeping, but they're not. So or, is that healthier or less healthy, right? I mean, that's the question. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, as, as we've been saying, it seems to be completely culturally arbitrary and culturally defined. You but, know, our, but our culture knows for sure oh, that that is bad. Well, they, we know yeah. for sure. That's not even a it's beyond question. Yeah. Although, I, saw I think my fu- all cultures know for sure, though, right? Oh, I yeah. mean, all the words, sure. the Navajo, Apache, yeah, Lakota, yeah, yeah. they all mean yeah. the people. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I saw, I did see my father have sex once um, when I was uh, six years old. I, um, the bathroom had a door, which was his bedroom door also. Mm. And I, I must have heard him and I opened the door and I looked and I saw right up the chute. <laughs> and uh i remember you know thinking i thought it was like an animal i, th- I remember thinking it was like an animal like a little right. animal i just saw like a lot of hair right and uh like these t- and they were kind of like joined together moving together I, I, is, in, in my, yeah in my yeah. mind at least that's what was happening and i thought it was this very odd looking animal yeah but um but i you know people are sure that 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 ruined me i don't i don't think so mm. i don't think so i don't see why it would i really don't no, no, unless unless you accept that cultural message. Yeah, I mean it's a weird, it's a very powerful thing. I don't mean to make light of this arbitrary cultural definition. I, you know, when people, you know, I give presentations and things. A lot of times, people say, "Well, okay, that makes sense on an intellectual level," but mm-hmm. I could not do right. that. Sure, and I am very um, sympathetic to that perspective, and I always remind myself how um, sort of uh, uptight I am about food. You know, like I remember one time I ate these puppies and I didn't know I was eating puppies. And the minute I found out, I like puked, you know, that that's what I'd been eating. And, you know, or like, you know, eating insects or like some like we were talking about Anthony Bourdain. He'll eat anything. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. he's completely 
um, sort of gone either abandoned or he never had this cultural acceptance of what's food and what's mm-hmm. not and all that. I've got it pretty bad. Uh, I, you know, like I love goat cheese, mm-hmm. but my wife gets goat milk and drinks that and puts it in smoothies and things. And I'm like, no, keep that shit away from me because sure. it's disgusting. Well, sure. what, what the fuck am I talking about? Goat cheese is fine. Goat milk isn't. Cow milk is okay. You know, cow yogurt is one thing. Goat yogurt's another. What the fuck? That's bullshit. Oh, yeah. You know, but I feel it. Sure. So it's, uh, you know, right. so we're if, not dismissing this sort of so thing. If, yeah, so if uh, uh, an adult had sex with my son, I would want to kill that person. Mm. Um, in Even part, if your son was fine with it. In part because I've deeply internalized the culture. Right. And I understand that. Right. Um, and it's not so easy to escape that. And in part because I know, well, I don't know if my son were fine with it, that would make it easier. But like, in part because I would assume that it, he would feel pain. How old's your son? 13. So I would assume that at some point in his life, and this seems almost inevitable, that he would feel pain from that because the culture would be telling him to. So so it's a real okay, pain. But what if the adult even was... Though it's, like, even though it's culturally, culturally determined, right? it's still a real pain. Well, sure. Yeah. It, you know, it's like uh, people get confused about psychosomatic or psychogenic illness, right? And, and they sure. say, well, oh, it, it comes from your psychological perspective or whatever. It's pain. It's still, it's pain. still pain. That's right. right? It's, yeah. I wrote about this once, and the example I used is you have a dream, and you step on a snake, and the snake sinks its fangs into you. So what do we do with women who say they feel like they were raped in what looks to us like consensual sex? Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Or the example I was going to turn to, um, you know, you're talking about your son who's 13. Mm-hmm. So let's give him a couple of years. He's 15. Mm-hmm. He's masturbating. You know, mm-hmm. he's on that level. He's a sexual being, mm-hmm. right? And you find out that he's been having sex with his 23-year-old geometry teacher mm-hmm. who happens to be smoking hot. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. Right. So the culture tells me if it's a woman, great. If it's a man, oh my God. Well, the culture's not really telling you that, right? Because that woman will go to prison. Oh, yeah, but we still, most of us think that that's <laughs> not just okay, but fabulous, right? <laughs> well, I, and, and then personally, it, I do. But, no, but then yeah. in flip it, of course, then yeah. if, if he were a girl right. and a, a 23 year old man, right. then it's horrible. Right. It's so, right. our culture is so conflicted. And well, so contradictory. But aren't there differences there? Mm, why Maybe. well i mean i'm not sure I, generally i go with the sort of you know everybody's the same the same rights and yada yeah but i do kind of feel like a 15 year old boy and a 15 year old girl are different in some ways the girl's ahead you know lots of 15 year old oh, girls yeah. are way more mature and uh, yeah. but i feel like a 15 year old girl is sexually appealing to adult men in a way that a 15-year-old boy generally isn't to an adult woman. Right. And women generally, and I think this is pretty demonstrably true, are just are not as exploitative and nasty and single-minded around sex as men are. So in a case where if I find out a 30-year-old guy is fucking a 15-year-old girl, I immediately assume that guy's a dick. 30-year-old woman's fucking a 15-year-old, I, I think she might have problems. She might be mentally not or psychologically not very. Hmm. But I don't think she's a rapist. Interesting assumptions. Yeah. 
I'm not probably sure, uh, unjustifiable, but they're there. Well, I don't know. It's more that they're interesting to me. You know, like why you have those assumptions, right? I think those need to be. Well, I think questioned. I mean, because women not, have much more access to sex. If they want sex, they if a thirty year old woman wants to have sex, she can have sex. Right, but why would you assume that she has a problem? Well, I'm not saying she necessarily does. Why would you but, call it a problem? Well, because she wants to be having sex with a fifteen year old boy. But why is that a problem? Because or why, or why does that indicate some psychological problem? Is what you're suggesting, right? Well, because a fifteen year old boy is a kid. He's not a very interesting uh, to you. Not interesting to you. But well, why, can't, why isn't it okay to find that interesting sexually? Yeah, it's okay. I guess it's okay. I don't know. I, I mean, it is weird. I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine I recently. Mean, you're, you're, you're defining deviancy, right? Yeah. Now, again, I'm not or saying you're, you're identifying. she's necessarily this. I'm just saying that would be my sort of first assumption. Right. My first assumption of the man is he's a bad guy. Right. And he's exploiting this girl. Right. My first assumption of the woman is, which is right. again, neither one of which are necessarily true. I'm just saying my first assumption may, is that she – there's something about her that makes her afraid of men, adult men. Again, this and, is, this is, but this is the cultural norm. I mean, your, your ideas are – I don't see her as a normal. predator. I see the guy as a predator. Yeah, no, and, I, and yeah. that's what the culture assumes too, right. generally, right? That's the culture talking. Well, but then if the culture is saying that, then why are we sending the woman to prison? You know? Well, we do. We no, do. no, I'm saying why are we? You know, oh, oh, why, yeah, yeah. why should we? If, if her, if, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a complicated it's – a, it's a strange thing. Because when I was that age, I had uh, you know, a thing with adults and uh, oh, yeah? or actually younger than that. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like your situation where it's a, it's some, it was with a babysitter. Hmm. And the culture says, wow, that's way too young that she manipulated you. There's mm-hmm. all this damage. Exactly. I look back on it and I, was like, I felt no damage sure. at all. I yeah. didn't feel manipulated. I felt like right. she presented an opportunity. I was into it, even though I didn't really understand it. But mm-hmm. it was fun. It was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't see the the victimization. And of, there. and of course, on one level, it was exploitative, like all sex is, right? I'm using you for my pleasure as part of what's going on in all sexual encounters, right? So that's that's always funny to me is when yeah. people sort of like identify something as being exploitative right. and that being necessarily a bad thing. Right. It's all exploitative. Everything. Yeah. What, what you and I are doing right now is me an object. Well, you're exploiting you me right now, and I'm exploiting yeah. you right now. I mean, yeah. it's all there's exploitation in every human relationship. Yeah. Um, so sure, but especially in sex, yeah. I mean that's always there's exploitation always going on. Um, so yeah, if a man is exploitative, using the girl for his sexual pleasure, yeah. And so why is it necessarily a bad thing? It's so interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> complicated. Uh, well, we've been going at this two hours plus the fifteen minutes that I fucked up <laughs> and disappeared. So I'm gonna into I'm the go- ether. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, into the ether. We'll we'll get to that next time. Thanks a lot for doing this, Thad. Yeah, man. Uh, Always. Thaddeus Russell, give us websites, and, and the well, book is... Uh, a Renegade History of the United States. Got to buy that. Yeah, um, it's a classic. A classic, available on Amazon and everywhere. Um, and I, I, My website is ThaddeusRussell.com. And people can follow you on Twitter. Twitter. I'm active on Twitter. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Cool. Definitely. I follow you. Cool. Wherever you lead, man. <laughs> and I, you. <laughs> Thanks. All right. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. 
Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation, running from a confrontation? Go down. We'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.